0: And friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another edition of the 605 Super Podcast, this being another of our special editions, this being a look at the life and career of Pat Patterson, a Hall of Fame wrestler, a Hall of Fame creative executive in the wrestling business, and someone who so many people have fond memories of. We're going to talk a lot about that here on this special episode of the Super Podcast, and to join me here at the top of the show and at various points throughout the show, I'm very happy to have back on the show the man who, along with Pat, wrote "Accepted," how the first gay superstar changed WWE. He's our friend Bertrand Eber. Bertrand, thanks for being here today.
1: Thank you for the invitation, uh, Brian. I mean, it's uh, it's been bittersweet, but you know, I owe Pat at least uh, to to make sure that. Uh, His story is tell one more time.
0: Well, we really appreciate you being here. And of course, our condolences to you because we know how close you were with Pat and the relationship you formed with Pat while working on Accepted. And of course, your relationship went well beyond the publication of the book. Before we talk about Pat and his career, talk a little bit about the Pat Patterson you got to know to anyone who just watched him on TV or anyone who just heard stories about him. What was Pat Patterson really like?
1: Pat was always trying to entertain himself and entertain people around him. You know, he wanted to laugh, you know, and he wanted to have good food and good drinks and enjoy life. Be happy. And and, I mean, that's the message. I mean, he was never consumed by wrestling. It was always about having fun. And, you know, he was like, ah, wrestling. I said, you want to talk about wrestling all the time you know you, you're i'm talking to pat patterson so the first few times i'm like you know we're talking about his life but we're talking about rod the night before too and if all ah, right stop okay that's enough let's talk about something else but he was really good about that and that's a great lesson i'm taking out of it is that wrestling is not the end of everything uh you have to be grounded in reality and you have to, to pick your battle. And sometimes, you know, wrestling is wrestling. It's cool. It's fun. We love it, but don't, don't let it consume your life.
0: How did the book project first take light? And when did you actually first get to know Pat and talk to Pat?
1: So Sylvain Grenier was with La Résistance was uh, a friend that Pat made and, and he got into the wrestling business. And, uh, when he, we left WWE, he, he ran a promotion here in Montreal and they, they came up with a, a project, four hours, a pilot of four uh, shows, four hours. And I wrote, produced, scripted. Booked the show for them. Uh, and uh, since Pat was so close to Sylvain, we ended up having a production meeting with Pat Patterson to go over our shows. So that's how I first met him. Uh, and I brought him a copy of Mad Dogs, Midget & Screw Job about the story of Montreal wrestling. So um, We went through that meeting. It was just amazing. I mean, as someone involved in wrestling to actually talk shop with pat patterson is all in itself very uh you know it's uh it's a surreal experience a little bit so uh you know he also asked permission to vince to be part of the show so we ended up reviving the the segment he used to do on french television called a brunch with uh, with pat patterson which was uh, kind of a piper spit of in french with pat so I ended up, on the day of the shoot, producing and then writing and coming up with ideas for Pat to do for his segment. So that also was quite special. (laughs) You know, I don't want to sound like a Mark, but, you know, I kind of was. And, you know, we talked that day a lot because, you know, we're producing. So obviously, you know, it's time camera shoot and... A director and, and all of that stuff uh, so we have some time to talk and he's like oh I really like the book I like what you wrote about me oh the, the office they want me to write a book and they keep get, getting me those writers and, and you can't talk to them they don't know anything I have to explain everything to them you know so we talk and we talk and I can talk with Pat about Silvio Sanson the first promoter he had in Montreal and I know who the hell Dolph Ziegler was. So he could talk to me about anything and everything, switch between English and French, which also is a talent, and, and tell me his story without having to explain everything. So he really loved that, because he could just tell the stories without having to tell me who was who in the story. That that stayed there. But a few weeks later, he came back and called and said, well, a bar. I want I want you to do the book. So I'm gonna give your name. They're gonna call you and they're gonna get you to the office. Okay. You believe him because so far, you know, he's been awesome, but you know, yeah, they're gonna fly me to the office. They flew me to Stanford to interview with Kevin Dunn uh about the book. Um so that was pleasant meeting uh but obviously i was in their first choice as they they thought pat had pick a wrestling guy and they were afraid and i only had one book under my belt at that point uh they they were afraid that you know i was was going to be a book just about wrestling but the thing is is i knew about the wrestling so i could get to the rest of the story you know i I think in our Mad Dog Vachon book and in the Andre the Giant book, we always went and who was the person behind the wrestling? That That's the, the part that, that put everything together. And that's where I wanted to go with Pat. And that's how Pat was presenting in the book to me was always, I want to tell about my life. I want to talk about Louis. I want to talk about the travel, the territories. But it was never about, you know, matches after matches or how many, how big of a crowd it was. It was about, that one time when he was scared or that one time where Ray Steven brought him to a girls but it was never about you know oh I won 25 championship, so I didn't I knew right from the get-go we were we were not gonna get there but uh in in the case of the WWE I think they were a little bit scared that it was gonna be a quote-unquote wrestling book uh so they they, they tell me they're they're gonna meet with a few more people and which I interpreted as we're going to try to push other writer on Pat and we need to make a decision on this next week. Uh, well, Titan's time being what it is, uh, seven months later, uh, um, Pat calls me and said, well, what's up with the book? What's going on? You know, uh, it's been a while. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody has said anything. He said, wait a minute. So he calls at one day later or two days later and he's like, okay, they're going to call you for for one more interview. So I did one more phone interview, and Pat called me like the day after or something like that, and he's like, okay, they're going to call you tomorrow to tell you you have it, and we're going to start. Okay. So I don't know what happened there exactly. I never, you know, but obviously Pat was like, okay, I get you to fire the other two rider. This guy is my guy, and I think they kind of, put it on the line with him is like, okay, well if he's your guy, then you're gonna have to deliver a book. So and we went and you know it we worked nonstop for about six months. So I did that for about six months, only that, which was amazing in itself to be able to 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 get paid to do what I love and talk about what I love. And and uh we had over fifteen to twenty working session of okay. interviews and uh and then in between I would like work nonstop in putting together the puzzle that he was giving me, because he was basically giving me a big, huge puzzle of a bunch of stories, not in order. <laughs> so I had to figure out what are we going to keep and how are we going to put that together into a book? And I remember one night, I mean, I'm bringing him like a very rough draft of sections of stuff that we discussed. So it's not even a book. It's not even a chapter. It's basically, you know uh transcript of some working session with him. So it's like, I'm trying to bring it as close as possible as as it would sound on paper, but there's everything all jumbled up together. It's not even a chapter. And we're trying to go through that. And he's like, you know, I don't know if it's the part about uh reading about yourself that he didn't like at first, but he went, and, and there was some stuff, obviously that we're not going to make the book, but he wanted to see some stuff. And I would, I just brought him whatever I got. So it, 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 didn't went smoothly that night. So I, by the time I was back home, I had a message on my voicemail and he was like, my God, I just read everything. It was so good. I loved it. I'm we're going to make that fucking book. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I was like, okay. After that point, you know, he, he started to call me his friend and you know, like he, now he believed that I could actually put the story on paper. I think that 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 was the basic of it, and, and after that it, it went pretty smoothly uh, up until the last revision, <laughs> where he wanted me to delete everything. <laughs> so that was a scary day, <laughs> where I had to tell him, "Okay, I know what you don't want. I know what needs to be there, and I'm going to finish the last reading alone, <laughs> because you know I cannot deliver one page as a book." Because it, I think it was like he was like scared because it was becoming real. It's like, oh, I'm not sure it should be there. I'm not sure. It, I'm not sure it should be there. Well, I cannot delete the whole book. <laughs> so that was a the scary day. But after he got the final book and people started to read it and, and tell him about it, I mean, there was uh, this guy in, at the airport who, who turned to him and, and took the, the book out of his bag to for him to sign. And, and tell him how much he loved the book and that the the, the man in question was gay and that how, how much Pat inspired him. And in the last few years when we did convention, there was always that one person that would come to him and tell him how much they were inspired by him to come out. Uh, and, and that really was, uh, that left a big impression on him. There was that, uh, couple that got married, uh, that came to one of the show in England and, and they basically interrupted their honeymoon. To come back and attend the show for, for Pat. And he just loved it that they had this married couple, uh, two men there to see him. I mean, he had them sit in first row of the show. So it, he was amazed about the, the power the book had. And, you know, and I'm not sure he even realized how much of a testament it's going to become of, of his life because that, that's pure Pat. Uh, the, the, the biggest compliment I was given was Mick Foley, who told us that He was reading the book and he could hear Pat speak in his head that, you know, people who know Pat felt like Pat was actually speaking. And that's the feeling I was going for. Is I want you to be sitting at the bar with Pat with a beer or vodka, whatever is your favorite. And he's just like telling you stories like he does all the time. So it was a great experience. And he loved it so much that he wanted to promote it. We got to go and promote it. So then we started doing the convention. Uh we did the Jericho cruise and uh, we did uh, the big event. We went back to Minnesota. We, we had in the car for that trip, a few hours trip between the Minneapolis and the casino where we, we were having the shows. There was like Pat Patterson sitting in the front, Bruce Pritchard and Dutch Mantel, me and Eric Bischoff on the back seat. <laughs> so, you know, that, you know, you cannot buy those experiences. That was just an uh, amazing time. And, and, you know, since I was with Pat, and, you know, they call me the Pat Rider, that Pat couldn't go anywhere without a rider anymore. Uh, so that was just fun. And, uh, you know, I, I took care of him because at that point, you know, there was some uh, dementia and some Alzheimer going on. And that's one thing I, I would love for people to remember if you met Pat in the past few years at convention and you were in the business and you felt Pat you know didn't recognize you or was big ligging you or something of that nature that was in the case pat just simply didn't remember didn't register for whatever reason and you know it it was never a case of uh, him being too good for anybody it was just simply his memory uh, playing trick on him well bertrand let's go back to the beginning
0: what can you tell the listeners about Pat's early days, Pat's childhood, and also, of course, how Pat broke into the wrestling business?
1: Well, Pat wanted to perform. That's what he was addicted to. You know, he wanted, first he became an altar boy at church, you know, the pageantry of the dressing up and uh, being in front of a crowd. He loved that. Um, he taught about joining the circus and becoming a trapeze artist. Uh, he was ice skating, but he wasn't playing hockey. He wanted to join the ice capades, which uh, he had even a try a tryout to, to join the troupe. But at some point, you know, they were not very uh, rich. Uh, and it's before television. So there's a, they buy bread and in the bread, there is a ticket to go see wrestling, a free tickets that you could get with the bread. And that's how he discovers wrestling. And he's like, Let's use a, a pat. He, he went banana uh, for the wrestling. And, and it was what he wanted to do. And he became a hot dog vendor at wrestling shows. Uh, he would uh, jump the gate to see wrestling because he couldn't afford a ticket. Uh, anything to see more wrestling. He loved Keller Kowalski, loved Buddy Rogers. He loved how Kowalski was a mean. Uh, guy, you know that you hated. Uh and uh, he loved our Buddy Rogers at the the jackets and the flamboyants and all of that. So that 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 was his inspiration uh, uh, as a fan, and he he got to be friend with a guy at school uh, who was the son of Silvio Sanson, uh, who was one of the many wrestling promoters in Montreal, and he got the 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 son to train with him Cyclone, and what was the nickname of the and, and they, 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 they put together a pretty good match in training at, the uh, the Loisir, uh, which was a kind of a, you know, uh, it would be like a youth house of some sort where people would, would do different activities. And, and they had wrestling there. And that's how he, he learned. And with the ultimate goal being to convince Silvio Sanson that they, they should put him and his son on, on the, on, in the ring. And obviously, you know, Silvio Sanson being a promoter, well, you know, that wasn't his idea to have his son becoming a wrestler, but, you know, Pat convinced him and, and they were tearing it down. And right off the bat, Pat was a very good worker and a natural worker. Uh, it took a lot of bumps, you know, so though, like you said, I mean, the old timer, they all wanted to stretch you, but, As soon as they realize that you can make them look good, you know, they'll want to work with you. And that's basically what happened. Uh, So, I mean, it was local wrestling. There was basically no money. Uh, Bounce bounce check and, you know, eight in a car and things of that nature. But uh, he learned and, you know, no nine to five job was good for Pat. Um, So obviously, I mean, it led to him uh, meeting Tony Santos, who came to Montreal, and deciding after uh, the big blow off with his dad about him being gay, to uh, borrow twenty dollars from his sister, uh, take a suitcase in the garbage, and move to the U.S. and uh, take the Greyhound to Boston, and that's where he started wrestling for Tony Santos.
0: And it was during that period of time, nineteen sixty-one in Boston where Pat Patterson would meet a young Les Thatcher. Let's now go to a conversation I was able to have earlier today with Les Thatcher, talking about his memories of working in Boston for Tony Santos alongside Pat Patterson. I am happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast today to talk about Pat Patterson, someone who knew him at the very beginning of his wrestling exploits in the United States, a friend of the show, Les Thatcher. Les, thanks for being here today.
2: Uh, It's... It's a uh, bittersweet pleasure, Uh, Brian. Yeah, Pat and I go all the way back to 1961.
0: Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Pat in 61 because it wasn't just you and Pat going back to 61. That was the beginning of Pat's wrestling career in the United States. He came from Montreal. How was his English? Talk about when you first met him and how was his English when you first met him?
2: The English was, you know, he had that uh, Montreal (laughs) inflections or, or, you know, uh, you knew he was from Montreal, but he spoke good English, you know. And well, you know, he was a big fan of uh, Killer Kowalski, and uh, so his ring gear was purple trunks, purple boots, and uh, what I call a shorty robe, like you know, it, more more the length of a sport coat, right? But it, but it, a robe and nonetheless, and a tie. It was also purple, and that was uh, you know because he was such a big Kowalski fan. But uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, and and of course, Pat had just, you know, you're right. It was his first venture into the States uh, to work. And I had, when I first worked with him, actually, there's a poster um, behind my computer on the wall here uh, from August the 8th, 1961 at the uh, Mountain Park Pavilion in Holyoke, Massachusetts. The second match on that card was Pat Patterson versus Les Milady later to be less stature. And so that's how far back we go, you know. And uh but you know what? Uh I we're we're both still, you know, he'd been working a couple years already. But I remember he was still that he was so smooth. You know, he was well, you know, talk about it guys being a natural and, and I assume that, you know, is the best way to say it. He he was just a natural. But we had a lot of fun too. And uh Actually, you know, I, when we, I knew we were going to do this, and I posted some stuff on on Facebook of my remembrance remembrances of Pat as well. But we worked in this town um, called North Adams, Massachusetts, in an outdoor stadium. And this town is where some of the top boxers, fighters that were going to fight, you know, in the Garden in New York, would come to train, like um, Sugar Ray Robinson, Paul Pender, and guys like that. And and there was this permanent ring in the middle of the stadium. And, of course, back then, you know, they would charge people to come in and watch these big celebrity boxers uh, spar and, and train. So Tony Santos had booked a match there, and Pat and I were against one another on the card. And the only problem with this is boxers don't take bumps. And this ring was built out of railroad ties and concrete block. Ooh. so It was basically like walking on your, your asphalt's driveway or your concrete basement floor. So Pat and I each took one bump and decided maybe a stand-up match would be more (laughs) beneficial.
0: (laughs) Sounds like a good idea.
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, then another, again, you know, everybody's, I think, talked about Pat being a prankster and and having a great sense of humor. And that was evident then as well. We, We worked at another outdoor show, this in Hyannis, Massachusetts, and the show was promoted by an ex old ex-wrestler, uh, Fred Bruno, who refereed for Tony Santos. And Fred had the most, his ears are the most cauliflowered ears I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, both ears had maybe the size of a pinhole that you could actually, you know, get, you could put something in. I mean, they were just that cauliflower. But anyway... Ronnie, Cowboy Ronnie Hill had named the arena in Highness Bruno's backyard because it actually was Fred's backyard. To a certain, he owned a lot of property off the back of where his home was, and in the summer he ran wrestling shows there. But anyway, it had rained earlier in the day, and there were some low, a few low spots in that ring where there was actually water standing in the canvas. Apparently, the canvas stayed on the ring twenty four seven. So anyway, Pat's whole offense that night was to be sure that he could get me down near one of those puddles of water and cover me, so the referee would have to slide in to count. And so Pat, in his you know in, in true heel manner, could bounce up and slap those puddles. You're not counting fast enough, and as he's slapping those puddles, he sprang that referee in the face with that water. So <laughs> by the end of the match, I think he had more heat with the referee than he had with any of the fans watching the damn show.
0: How was he as a heel in those early days? Oh, he was good.
2: He was good as a heel. Uh but you know what? And of course that was something that um I remember he came he came uh by HWA when I had the contract with WWE and uh actually I've got a picture of he and I both uh flanking this poster I mentioned somewhere us pointing to our our names. But uh he wow. He was just a, a talented guy who uh, loved life. He was a a free spirit. Well, you know, he met Louis, his life partner, in Boston. And uh, actually, they attended, along with some of the other wrestlers. uh, I got married the first time in 1960, November of 61. Uh, a lady from Winthrop, Massachusetts. and, And they were at my wedding. I also remember Louis had bought Pat a damn German Shepherd. Now, realize this rooming house we lived in, there were some small apartments, which, but at this time when when Louis bought him the dog, Pat had a room. Hell, I don't, couldn't couldn't tell you what the measurement was, but you know it had a bed, a chair, a lamp, uh, a, a sink where you could wash your hands, and then everybody in that section of the rent, rooming house used a community bathroom. On there, you know, there was one in each uh, each hallway on on all four floors, and so you figure him living in this room the German shepherd didn't last very long because the landlord, I mean, trying to get the dog in and out, you know, without the landlord seeing him. So Louis had to take the dog back, but uh, wow.
3: Talk a little bit about that.
0: Talk a little bit about the rooming house on Westland Avenue. Who else was living there? And what was the, community of wrestlers in that building like <laughs> it was kind of crazy
2: you know everybody well everybody was young i was 19 uh 20 years old i was 60 61 right there's when we were there uh kid from cleveland uh jimmy flash thomas lived there ronnie dupree terry garvin uh don kindred black magic lived there Haystacks Muldoon, alex medina so a bunch of you know a bunch of the guys were there and so, you know, everybody would congregate in different places. I had mentioned to you before we started recording about Boston stew, and I made a list of all the ingredients years and years ago. And of course, it's disappeared someplace. But anyway, each there were four floors, and at the end of the long hallway in each on each floor, there was a uh, one bedroom uh, uh, apartment, a little kitchen, living room, and a bedroom. But they, that, per, that person still had to share a bath as well. But uh, so Goldie, Ronnie Dupree had one, uh, and it was the second floor. And so uh, the first one came uh, available on the fourth floor, and Pat jumped on it because he couldn't be outdone by Goldie. So anyway, I don't even know how this whole thing started, but they decided we were going to do something. Uh, Mr. Aston that owned the place, him if you were casting a, a movie. About a landlord of a uh, a rooming house, Mister Aston and his dog Jippy <laughs> would have worked out really well. I mean, they they fit they fit the whole uh, the whole thing. So anyway, uh, they were always trying to rib Mister Aston, and so this all started. Somebody said, "We'll cook this up and cook." Anyway, they somebody got one of these five one of these big uh, galvanized tubs, like a five gallon or whatever. And Pat has, you know, a stove in his uh, fourth floor, uh little uh, apartment. So anyway, they just started putting stuff in this. This was in like in the middle of the day. And so a whole box of oatmeal, right? Not the little packets, but a whole damn box of oatmeal. Feathers from a pillow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, apple peels, orange peels. Terry, you got to you got a... Garbage in your room. You don't need less, you know. And so they're filling this this whole tub up on top of Pat's stove, and so he sets it like to simmer. Right? Like, and at this point, uh, Tony's office used to be right across the street on the second floor of this industrial building in the middle of a parking lot, right across from the uh, the uh, rooming house where we lived. But he had, uh, um, in late sixty or early early sixty one, I guess it was. To, he moved up to St. Bethal Street and the old Boston Arena so he could run shows there and had his office and the gym there as well. So anyway, we had to go down. Something was going on at the uh, arena, so we're going down there. So we come back and everybody's gathered in at, at Pat's place and this whole thing is like, it's, you know, mixing water and, and but it's kind of boiled down and now it's almost like a paste but it's huge, right? And it's so like... About three, uh, the owner, Mr. Aston lived on the uh, first floor. If you came into the lobby to the back on the, on the right side and Pat's apartment was top floor left side. And so, like, it must have been 2.33 o'clock in the morning. Terry and Pat carried this tub out to the railing of the fourth floor. And, of course, if you look over that railing, it's a direct drop to that lobby. Which is uh, old, you know, the old hardwoods and tiles on the floor and everything. They turned this tub over and this thing went down. And when it hit, I'm surprised it didn't wake the whole damn building up. And of course, all of us scattered, run to our room. And the next morning on our way out, it was (laughs) Mr. Aston and this guy who was kind of his maintenance guy are in the hallway. And you'd have to see this because when that mess hit that tile floor, it climbed the walls and dried. (laughs) And so if you walk, here's oatmeal and God knows what else and feathers sticking out of it, hanging off the walls. And that's what I called the Boston (laughs) Stew. That's the type of thing that went on. (laughs) Oh, lordy, lordy, lordy. So he was a big prankster even
0: early in his wrestling career.
2: Yes, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, he was uh, that was just he he was a good guy. And, you know, so creative. too. He was creative back then as well. Not obviously not to the point that, you know, that he was later and later years. But, you know, when you realize the opportunities, the people that for him to work with Ray Stevens for so long, I mean, not that Pat himself wouldn't have been good with or without Ray, but Some of Ray rubbed off on him and and some, you know, and that was how it was back then, Brian, with all of us. You know, you worked uh, with guys above you all the time coming up. And as you did, you either got better or got the hell out of the way. And uh, but, yeah, he was extremely talented guy. And and, and, you know, and honestly, uh, a lot of fun to be around. And, you know, he was not bashful about his sexual orientation at all.
0: I was going to ask you about that because one of the things I've always found fascinating about Tony Santos's promotion is that there were a lot of wrestlers who were either openly gay or, uh, in some cases, closeted gay to the outside world but were known to be gay and not ashamed of it in the wrestling world. What was that like? I mean, was Tony Santos – I never see pictures of him Think, oh, this must be a real liberal guy. <laughs> but there were a lot of guys working for him that were openly gay. What was that like?
2: Uh, it was – Well, you know what, I, you know, I'm a Midwestern kid, 19 years old, when I went to Boston, and I knew what gay people were, right? And I probably had met some, just didn't know it, right? And after a while, I thought, man, is that the induction into the wrestling business? (laughs) You know, you're right. Well, Goldie was was gay, and of course, Terry and and Pat, and I, I can't speak for anybody else, but they were all, you know, basically open with that. And, well, I, you know, I mentioned you, I don't know, should I bring up what I told you before we started recording?
0: Uh, you can, and if I deem that it doesn't fit in the tribute, I'll edit it out, but please feel free to tell that story.
2: Well, it probably doesn't fit in the tribute, <laughs> but, you know, Because, but Pat was, you know, like I say, he he was comfortable with it, and, you know, we knew... I mean, it wasn't like he went into the arenas, you know, he never came across, you know, in the ring as, as, as gay or it never played the, the Ricky star or, or, or the Goldie or, or any of that, you know, uh, but he was not uncomfortable with it. And, and if he knew that people were, he would mess with them and, and as such. Now, I think this was more t- maybe a test for Alex Medina and myself, uh, the story I'm about to tell because. Uh, you know, we knew we knew he was gay. Anyway, the three of us are leaving the rooming house and we're going to uh, Symphony Delicatessen, which is up on Mass Ave, just a few blocks from where we live. And so we're walking up the sidewalk and here comes uh, one of college kids walking by a young man. And the life of me, I wasn't paying that close attention to him, but I'm assuming he's a decent looking young guy, you know, college student with some books and stuff. And as he walks by us, just out of the clear, and Pat doesn't turn. He just keeps looking straight ahead. He's walking. I'm on the inside. Uh, Alex in the middle. Pat's on the on the outside. And as the guy walks by, Pat keeps looking straight ahead and just says loud enough the guy had to have heard him. Wow! I just I'd love to suck a big cock today. <laughs> and Alex and I just <laughs> came up from stall. What did he? I looked at Alex and Alex said, Yeah, I think he just said that. But Pat just smiled and kept on walking. <laughs> He was just it was shock value. That's all I can say. It was shock value, you know, but, you know, it was he was like I say and realize with him and Louis coming to my wedding. I mean, not that I cared, you know, but uh, but but Boston, I think in that in terms of sexuality was more liberal at at that point in time uh, than, you know, than any other part, at least Cincinnati, where I came from. And a part of that, I think, because of the arts, you know, and so forth. So uh, they fit right in there. They fit right in.
0: Louis is obviously a big part of his story. They would remain together until Louis passed away. What do you remember about when Louis first appeared on the scene? And what can you tell us about their relationship as you witnessed it back in 1961?
2: Well, it was obvious that they were, I guess you'd say, smitten with one another, right? And Louis, uh, again... It wasn't like he was, you know, trying to hustle Pat or anything. Uh, it appeared to be a, a good relationship, you know, in terms of that. And uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, just like to see sit on the on the on the front steps there, with Louis, you know, sit there with Louis and Pat and talk. It wasn't like hey, there's two gay guys and that straight guy there. It was just three guys talking, you know. And Louis was comfortable with all of us. He uh, fit right in, you know. So it was. Uh, and, you know, and apparently I've said this to people before, years, even before, before Louis passed away. And I, you know, I don't know anything about gay relationships or, or how they work or anything, obviously. But I thought, you know, these guys have been together through thick and thin all the years that Pat's been in the business. And how many of us, um, straight guys have gone through how many marriages in the same period of time? You know, so maybe there's something to be said for that. I don't know. But Louis, I was dedicated to Pat. Uh, obviously, that there was a mutual respect, and uh, you know, in terms of social, I, uh, what little you know, he would come around the the, the rooming house and and sit with us on the front steps or in one either Pat's uh, room or Goldie's apartment. I mean, a lot of times, you know, the guys would sw- go or walk floor and see whose door is open, whose wasn't. But he fit right in. You know, nice guys. always. You know, I I didn't know him that well, uh, but always struck me as as a nice guy and and definitely, you know, uh, had a a thing for Pat and and respected him.
0: A few more questions for you today, Les. One, obviously you brought up a couple names that made me think of Jack Pfeffer, whether it was Black Magic or Haystack's Muldoon. So let me ask you, was Pfeffer around at all during this period of time? And also, did Tony Santos like Pat? I mean, was there any relationship between the promoter and the wrestler?
2: Well, you know what? Tony uh, Santazaro, the first time I walked into his office in, in 1960, in February 1960, to start my training and to meet him for the first time, as I look back, my first thought would have been, if I were putting together a movie about fighting or, or fights or wrestling, this guy would have been my the promoter, right? He was the guy, the big, heavy-set Italian guy, nice suit, snap-brim hat. Cigar in one corner of his mouth. That was Tony Santos. He looked the part. But when Pfeffer came to... Now, I'm I'm under the impression, and this is a story I heard. I I don't know if it's factual or not, but I'm assuming that it is. I've heard it from enough people uh, in different times, uh, is that at one point during Tony's early part of his promotional uh, career, when he first started, he got into financial bind and Pfeffer bailed him out. So he felt you know, uh, beholding to Jack. So anytime Jack came to town, you knew that Jack was in town before you saw him because you saw the goofy names in the program. Right? So, but a lot of, well, Muldoon. Bill Tui was a good humor uh, driver for, I think, Montauk Point. <laughs> Long Island. Yeah, he was. Good humor, drove a good humor truck in Montauk Point. How he came across Pfeffer or Pfeffer him, I have no idea. But Jack brought him to Boston to make, turn him into, the, you know, to Haystack's Muldoon. And uh, so that was, you know, uh, and uh, he used a lot of the guy, I mentioned Flash Thomas, I know, you know, it went, uh, early on in, in the early 60s, before I ever, uh, I'm not sure, late 50s, early 60s, uh, if you took uh, black wrestlers into the south this part of the country, southeastern United States, they had to wrestle other black wrestlers. They, they didn't mix the black and white in ring. And I know Jimmy uh Jimmy Thomas I mentioned who lived there in the uh in the house uh, that Jack used him later. After this after I'd already left up there, but I'd see, you know, uh, advertisements and stuff where uh Jimmy was being used. So Jack would take guys out, but Jack brought guys in too. Uh Buddy Fuller came in, uh, at one point, Jackie Fargo. Uh well Furpo was working for Pfeffer when he spent uh time up there. Uh in fact I remember because I was driving him around and, uh, several, you know, uh, you remember, you ever seen pictures of the Bavarian boys. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Well, they, you know, they came to Boston occasionally. So Pfeffer, you know, there was always that tie, but Jack wasn't there that much. I think, oh, maybe in the time 60 and 61 that I was there, maybe he was in town, maybe at the most three times, but twice, I'm sure.
0: Well, that's after he leaves Boston, Pat would venture out west, go to Pacific Northwest, and that would begin his run of various places from there to San Francisco, West Texas, et cetera. You would end up going in other places. Do you remember the last time you saw Pat in Boston, and when was the next time you saw him after that? Wow,
2: a long time. Uh, we actually didn't bump heads again until, um, wow, I'm trying to think, I, I guess uh, back in, in the WWE time. Or WWF, right? We never worked the same territories after that. Right. We were never in the same territories. Or if we were, it was at different times. Um, I never got to the, to the West Coast. And, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of my, I'm going to guess probably next time. Maybe, I, I'm trying to think if he was at the NWA meetings in Vegas since maybe, mm-hmm. no. He went, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm going to say early, uh, late '70s, early '80s. The next time I ran ran into him, but of course, I don't know about everybody else. But you know, I always followed uh, the careers of the guys that I more or less started with. You know, and so I always try to keep track of those guys. And uh, I followed. I thought, wow, this guy is he's on fire. You know, and, and there's no doubt. I mean, I, I I had a chance to work with Ray Stevens later in Ray's career, and, and, but I never worked with the two of them as a team, and I can only imagine what a great time it, you could have you could have had, you know, uh, to work with these two guys. They, they were just that, that tremendous.
4: Les,
0: wrapping things up, how do you think Pat Patterson should be remembered, and how will you remember him?
2: I remember him as a really good guy who is extremely talented in the ring and obviously has brought a lot of creativity, a good finish man. Uh, a prankster, a guy with a great sense of humor, um, and basically, you know, I guess uh, I always looked at a lot of the guys that I broke. You know, when I broke in at sixty sixty one, a lot of the guys I've just we've just talked about were already working for a year, two or three. But I always felt like we were the graduating class together, so I always try to keep track of all those guys. But I'd say Pat needs to be remembered as as a guy who loved the business. And I do know from talking to him in recent years that he wasn't all that excited about the way the business was going. He didn't say that publicly, but, you know, like a circus, you know, it's a circus. And, uh, but great Finnish guy. Well, what Royal Rumble, uh, Survivor Series were both his brainchild. So, uh, you got to remember him for, if you don't remember him for the first ever intercontinental champion, you got to remember him for being a talented worker, a great creative mind, and just a real good guy who loved the business and, and uh, uh, contributed a lot. I, th- I think there'll be a big void in the business, and I, I think. So, well, you've seen it too, Brian. So many guys who say what they've learned from Pat, and I, I, I would. If I look back, I'm just saying I must have learned something too. I mean, he wasn't as green as me, but we were both, you know, kind of out there trying to find our way. But I do remember it was never a problem working with the guy. He was smooth as silk.
0: Coming out of Boston, Pat Patterson would head to the Pacific Northwest, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But Bertrand, what we just heard Les talk about were his memories of meeting Louis in Boston. And of course, Louis, Louis Dondero would be a big part of Pat Patterson's story, a big part of Pat Patterson's life. What can you tell us about his relationship with Louis?
1: I mean, it was the love of his life. That's his words. The book is dedicated to him. And it was someone who who made Pat's life complete. I mean, he, he actually goes to Portland uh, following Mad Dog's invitation, and, and he's leaving Louis behind. But, you know, they miss each other so much that Louis would quit his job and move at the other side of the country to be with Pat. And they would be together for the next 40 years, uh, which all of in itself is amazing in wrestling or in any kind of part of life to be together 40 years with the same person. And Louis was the person who kept Pat grounded in reality all those years. Uh, Louis was uh, the guy that, that charms anyone that was... Unsure about the fact that Pat was gay, you know, he would charm the pants out <laughs> off of them. I mean, Roy Shire, you know, first thing he, he tells Pat is, I heard you're gay. And, and you know, by the time he met Louis, you know, he, he goes and get his hair cut by Louis all the time and hires Louis to do some work for his party. So that's how Louis was. He would win people over because he was cultivated, he could talk about everything, and people genuinely <laughs> love Louis, so he's the difference maker in Pat's life. Basically, he, he he turns Pat into that serious person that doesn't let wrestling uh, take over his life.
0: And of course, like you said, he would eventually follow Pat to the Pacific Northwest to Portland. But before we get to there, let's talk a little bit about Pat's relationship with Mad Dog Machan. Talk a little bit about Pat and Mad Dog.
1: You see, Mad Dog was already, uh, becoming a star and important. He was a big star in the US, but he would come back periodically to Montreal. And that's when he ended up being on a show with Pat in his early days in Montreal. Pat tells it is like everybody was scared of Mad Dog because, you know, he he, he lived a gimmick. So nobody wanted to, uh, to get in his way, talk to him or anything like that. And, and you know, he saw once Mad Dog punch his best friend in in the face because he was annoying him so it's like if he's punching his best friend i'm staying the hell away from maurice and because you know pat loved to say you know i'm not a tough guy i just play one on tv and then after a match that pat had maurice is there waiting for him in the hallway and he's like you're gonna make a good wrestler Pat was so scared that he just continued. And, and to the day, Pat never knew how Mad Dog ended up knowing where he was. And out of the blue, he, he got a letter from Maurice telling him he had a starting date in Portland. But, you know, obviously working Boston at that point, you know, Pat barely makes any money. Uh, so he doesn't have the money to go and he doesn't know where Portland is and you know Santos doesn't want to let him go you know he's making the big show about uh you know the big map and he's telling him how long and far away Portland is from Boston and so Pat is scared and doesn't go so and Mad actually sent a second letter telling him you better get it here <laughs> or he's going to beat him up or something so you know He borrows money from Louis. You know, you see how important Louis is in that story. And uh, Pat moves to Portland to be with uh, Maurice. And uh, then, you know, that that would be the first territory, the first real territory, if you will, where Pat would become uh, someone. Although that's the first run, and and he would become the big star that we know that, that move on to San Francisco on the second run.
0: And, of course, Louis follows him. And like you said, he won everyone over. He won Mad Dog Vachon over, which Pat was worried about.
1: Yeah, so you know, out of the blue, and, and that's the part about that you have to to always remember. I mean, neither Pat or I chose the the, the name of the book, <laughs> uh, but at the time, you know, Maurice knew that Pat was gay. You know, the word word got around, but it's not like you know Pat is telling anyone or you know, you know, flashing it to anyone. So. Out of the blue, one night, you know, Maurice Co and see Pat and Louis is there, and he had met Louis when uh, Pat had brought him to uh, Montreal on, on on one trip back. So that's like he goes berserk, you know, and then Louis got scared because oh my God, we're gonna get discovered, you know. So Maurice get Pat in the car, say, "Let's go, we're gonna get him." And they finally found him. And, you know, I think Pat tells the story much better than I could ever. But, you know, Pat said, you know, I thought he, would, they were, he was going to kill him or something. And they ended up going to the bar because Maurice told him, you know, OK, let's go drink now. And by the end of the night, you know, Maurice was more friend with with Louis than he was with Pat. Uh Because, you know, Maurice loved to talk, loved to different subjects. And, you know, Louis could talk about anything. And after that point, uh, in Portland, Louis became, you know, he told, because that was very boring. I mean, they were on the road, Pat and uh, Maurice. And it's like, okay, what are we going to, you know, you're not leaving Louis alone. So bring Louis with us. Well, Pat, uh, Maurice, I cannot bring, tell people, you know, who, what I'm going to, yeah, he's my friend. Louis is my friend. He's coming with us. So instead of being Pat's friend, Louis was Maurice's friend. So nobody questioned it. So, you know, hiding in plain sight. And, you know, when Maurice would have his fight with his wife and the police would ask Maurice to, to spend the night elsewhere, he would sleep on the Louise couch. So <laughs> that, that's the kind of relationship they build up there.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about Pat Patterson in Portland. And let's go to this conversation with wrestling historian Matt Farmer. We continue our look at Pat Patterson, this time focusing on a period of time he spent in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm very happy to welcome to
4: the Super Podcast the historian Matt Farmer. Matt, thanks for being here today. Brian, it's great to be here. I appreciate it, man. It's good to talk to you finally.
0: Well, it's great to have you on the show finally. And it's great to talk about Pat Patterson in the Pacific Northwest. Of course, it isn't just the area of the country that you live in, but it's a place that you've done a lot of research for, a place that you know a lot of the history. And on that topic, talk a little bit about what Pacific Northwest wrestling what Don Owen wrestling was like before Pat Patterson got there in 1962
4: well it was pretty interesting because the Pacific Northwest was in like a i would say kind of like a golden era at the time portland was doing great under don owen and he had it was i guess the best way to describe it would also be like a satellite promotion so really quickly portland was kind of broken into two different territories. You had Portland, which was on Channel 12, which was taped every Friday night at the Portland Armory. Don Owen ran it. And then every Tuesday, there was a separate television in Seattle taped for Cairo Television on Channel 7, which was ran and operated by Harry Elliott. Now, Harry was a longtime employee slash worker promoter for the Owen family. And he would run a lot of spot shows and things like that in Oregon and Washington, dating way back to Don's father, Herb. So Harry got television in Seattle. He ran his own towns throughout the state of Washington, Idaho, and northeastern Oregon. And then Don had Oregon. And he had a bunch of towns in Oregon, of course. Um, So both territories at the time, both cities, And, of course, all the talent was booked out of the Portland office, but both sections of the territory were thriving. They were doing really great business at the time. There was a lot of big stars in the area, a lot of young, hungry talent. And uh, so that's what Pat was walking into in 1962. Now, it's
0: been said that the reason he went there was he was called for by Mad Dog Vachon. How big a star was Mad Dog Vachon in the area at that time?
4: Really big. He was probably he, at the time he was probably the biggest heel at the time, like the major force. And it was right when he was getting that nickname Mad Dog, and that very famous photo you see of Mad Dog Vachon with the chains wrapped around him and things like that. That really famous promo pic that was taken in Portland, and it was Don who christened in the name Mad Dog. So he was really breaking into his own himself you know, the territory was picking up, buildings were picking up. And uh, yeah, so he he would have been like the top heel at the time.
0: He was the top heel. Pat Patterson would come in also
4: on the heel side. Who were the top babyfaces in 62? Uh, you had guys like uh, Pepper Martin, Nick Bockwinkle, Shag Thomas, Luther Lindsay. Yeah, a lot of guys like that. So how did Pat Patterson fit in right away when he got there? Well, when when he was first brought in, it was as a preliminary guy. And it was just a guy that, you know, he didn't have a reputation. He'd only been in the business for a few years. And I think he was just brought in like Don liked to bring in like a lot of young, nice looking baby faces. It was just something that was his family always did. It was a territory that would usually have four to five matches per card. And so you wanted that preliminary guy, the young preliminary guy to just to come in and just kind of like get the attention of the girls and things like that. And that's where Pat's position was. And looking at the results, he didn't win a lot of matches (laughs) the first
0: couple of years in the
4: area. No, no. But he was, you know, very inexperienced still at the time because I think he'd only been to two spots before. I mean, he was coming straight from Boston, so his experience level probably wasn't there yet.
0: When did things change? When did all of a sudden he start getting elevated on the cards and how did that go?
4: Well, it's kind of interesting with Pat, because when he was in the Portland arm of the territory, he was working as killer Pat Patterson, where he was working as a heel. And then in the Seattle portion of the territory, he started working under the pretty boy Pat Patterson gimmick work, which was kind of like the more flamboyant, I'd say almost like a like, you know, kind of like a gorgeous George type character. And it was around that time where he really started picking up. Which would have only been uh, just a few months after his arrival.
0: Were there towns in either Washington or Oregon where you had an overlap of the TV show?
4: There were, yeah. Um, A lot of southern Washington, which would have been like Chehalis, Washington, Longview, Washington, things like, yeah, a lot of southern towns. The Portland TV would also air in some parts of eastern Washington, too, but it was pretty rare. They had both, you know, both TVs at the time, especially, would air in a town.
0: While in Portland,
4: they started teaming with Tony Bourne. Talk a little bit about where Tony Bourne was at that point in his career. Yeah, Tony was also like with Mad Dog Vashon. He was like one of the top heels at the time. You know, he was like one of those guys who was like considered like a hometown guy in Portland. And Tony was, yeah, Tony was just like the, the. Ever-present heel, but they had a very successful tag team, and it was kind of like the, you know, Tony was like the guy that helped elevate Pat into like a main eventer here in the Northwest.
0: Well, they had a successful tag team, but then they also had a successful feud. What can you tell us about that?
4: That was one of the Don Owen-like booking philosophies where he would have, and it was something that Tony Bourne redid throughout his career, whether it was with Shag Thomas or with. Um, Lonnie Maine, he would be a longtime tag team partner with a with a partner and then turn on the guy. And that's what he did with Pat Patterson, where, you know, they had been teaming for a long time and then all of a sudden turned on him and it would embroil into a big feud that would run across the territory. It's interesting because while both those Seattle and Portland arms had their own television, they ran their own angles, but it sometimes continued the same angles too. And that was one of the angles that ran throughout the entire territory.
0: Tony Bourne
4: against Pat Patterson. Correct. Yes.
0: What were the big highlights of that feud?
4: Okay. So the big match that they had was in 1964. So Pat had been around for a while. He left to Texas and came back. And when he came back, he was actually kind of a bigger star at the time. So in November of 1964, they had their big hair match. And it was one of those deals where The big payoff was, of course, Pat losing his hair. And then following that, it was the fans in each town wanted to see the bald Pat Patterson. But, of course, what Pat did is he did the old gimmick where he wore a mask. And so they would fight Pat to take the mask off at every town so that way they could show off the bald head, you know. And that was one of the gimmicks that ran throughout the territory for quite a while.
0: It wasn't that much longer. It was just at the beginning of 1965 where he would finally go to work for Roy Shire in San Francisco. But what can you tell me about the relationship between the two offices, the San Francisco office and Don Owens office?
4: Well, they did share a lot of talent because they were so, it was so easy to commute, uh, to commute between the two. Even when Pat became a big star in San Francisco, him and Ray Stevens would come up to Portland or Seattle to work the big shows here it wasn't uncommon for them to fly in just for a a shot at like say the Seattle Center Arena or the Portland Coliseum or something like that cuz in the 60s Don was running the Coliseum occasionally to uh like kind of like the big show that they would build to instead of running the Portland Armory or the Labor Temple or something like that
0: Obviously Pat would go on to greater fame in San Francisco becoming one of the blonde bombers and eventually a pretty lengthy and legendary run there but When you look at his period of time working for Don Owen, his period of time working in Portland and Seattle and the surrounding towns, what do you think Portland
4: means to the Pat Patterson story? I think with Pat, and this is something that I've actually talked to Pat about or promoters that worked with Pat during this time, is it was almost a coming out period, um, both as a performer and also personally as well, because as we all know, he was homosexual. And being a gay man in the 1960s was extremely difficult. It was in Seattle, and it was in Portland, where he actually came out in the industry as well. And his partner, Louis, was out here. And as a matter of fact, when Louis was in Seattle, Harry Elliott used Louis to be Pat's valet. And um I, I think it was the only time Louis was ever really involved in the wrestling business as far as a performer. but. Louis was his valet. And there were times where they would have Pat come to the ring in a Cadillac, you know, and Louis would be driving kind of like, you know, similar to like how gorgeous George did the same thing with his valets. But for Pat, that was a big deal for him personally, you know, as well. And he was always very fond of the Northwest because he felt like it was one of the few places in the country at the time, along with San Francisco, where he could be a little bit more of himself. One of the things also about the Northwest during that time is when he was able to wrestle a lot of those guys that were in the main events, guys like Nick Bockwinkle and Tony Bourne and Pepper Martin was another one of his big feuds. These were guys that he was able to really like learn his craft because that was like, you know, he, he was a preliminary wrestler moving up into the main events, and that's really where he learned how to become a main event caliber performer. You know, he used to brag about his matches with Pepper Martin, for instance, because Pepper was one of the big babyfaces out here. And they would go on to, like, switch the heavyweight championship back and forth between the two of them a few times. And that was a major feud in the Seattle-Portland area, too. And, of course, in 1964, there was another guy, young guy in the Northwest wrestling under the name Kazumoto who would go, later go on to be known as Antonio Noki? It was in the Northwest where Pat Patterson and Antonio Noki became good friends, but they were also in-ring rivals for a short period of time in the North- Northwest, and that led to uh, years later, in 1968, Pat Patterson going to Japan and becoming a major opponent for Antonio Noki.
0: Coming out of Portland, Pat would get the biggest break of his career so far, and that would be going to San Francisco to work for Roy Shire. Bertrand, what did Pat tell you about his first thoughts about Roy Shire and what did he know or what was he expecting going into San Francisco?
1: Well, you know, the other guys told Pat you should call Roy Shire because you're perfect for him. You know, you're you're the type of wrestler that's great. You should be teaming with uh, Ray Stevens. You do a good business there. So that's how Pat presented it to to shire and he's like well the boys don't tell me what i do (laughs) but you know he ends up giving uh pat a chance and after the first night i mean pat came home and said i to louis i don't think we're gonna make it here long because he doesn't like gay guy and then you know by the time Pat left. He was basically running San Francisco for Roy Shire as the right and man. And Louis was uh, very close to Roy as well. And Roy never questioned it because that's the one thing that's different about Louis and Pat is maybe they didn't like go on the street and, and manifest and, and, you know, demand rights and to be equal or things of that nature. They showed up at work. They did what they were supposed to do they were consistent they were just good people and they showed that you could be gay and just be someone that was normal that you just happened to be gay but you were a good person good worker and and a good friend uh, or a good cook or a good singer or so it just uh, it it changed people's perception you know and by changing people's perception those people changed the perception of people around them or their family so that's what they did. And, uh, I think that's what they were so good together is that they, they showed an image of what gay couple may be, uh, what we may be today more used to. But back then, I mean, that's not the image, uh, that, that gay uh, had. And, and slowly, just by being themselves, doing it their way, uh, they, 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 they changed people's perception.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about Pat Patterson in the Bay Area for Roy Shire. Here's my conversation with wrestling historian, Rock Rims. To discuss Pat Patterson's career in Northern California, I am very happy today to welcome back to the Super Podcast, Rock Rims, who amongst several great wrestling books was of course the author of When It Was Big Time, A 100-Year History of Northern California professional wrestling rock thanks for being here today oh brian it's my pleasure thank you for having me it's uh,
5: great to be, uh, be on the show again
0: talking about pat patterson he arrived in san francisco at the start of 1965 if you're going to go back to that time period what was the layout what was the san francisco promotion like roy shire's promotion in 1964
5: into 1965 um at that time uh and he really come off of the two stro- probably the two strongest years that he would have, uh, in the history of his promotion. Um, so, you know, and of course, you know, when you have uh wrestling territories, you're always looking for new blood, new faces to kind of keep things going. And, uh, so the opportunity was there for him. And, uh, in fact, uh, Ray was, was out of the area for a little while. And, uh, and Pat came in and, uh, and he had an opportunity. That's so the opportunity was there for him to shine. And, uh, After some time, he really
0: did. And he didn't arrive as a blonde, correct? No,
5: he was uh, dark-haired. He had been dark-haired working in Portland. Um, Pepper Martin, uh, who had known uh, Roy Shire from working back in Indianapolis, uh, was in the territory, and he uh, put in a good word for Pat to come inside of the territory. Uh, It it was dark-haired, and the... Pat had uh, suggested to Roy that, hey, you know, people would say that Ray Stevens and I, of course, Ray Stevens was basically the cornerstone of the promotion as far as the wrestling talent and uh, had led to, uh, was, was part of some of the biggest uh, record-breaking crowds that they ever had at the Kyle Palace for wrestling. I really set the territory on fire. And uh, so Pat suggested, you know, that it, uh, that people had uh, compared him to Ray Stevens and that he felt that there would be a great compliment as a tag team. And uh, when he came in, we had dark hair. Uh, it was uh, short. He had just lost a uh, hair match back in the Pacific Northwest. And so it was coming in its natural dark uh, color. And uh, eventually, he said, uh, he was. Uh, Roy told him, yes, you know, why don't you go ahead? We're going to dye your hair blonde, and we'll match you as a partner for Ray Stevens. And thus, the Blonde Bombers was formed.
0: So the fans got to see that. They got to see him come in as a heel with dark hair, and then all of a sudden... Once Ray Stevens returns, he's a blonde. How did the fans react to that?
5: Well, Ray Stevens was pretty much taking the lead on the promos, but, you know, Ray Stevens, and of course, very integral part of the promos that Ray and Pat did was to put down the wrestling fans. That was something that was still kind of new and novel at that time of pro wrestling, where you put down the local fans. And uh, so that's one of the ways they really got heat through their interviews. Um, they hated them. I mean, part, partly it was guilty by association just for the fact that he's, you know, he's with uh, paired with, with Ray Stevens, who was voted the most hated heel. And ironically, just because of his charisma, it had also been uh, voted the most popular in the promotion in the very same year. But they, uh, they it was just an instant hit as far as gaining heat. And uh, they just skyrocketed at to the top.
0: And of course, they did have a somewhat similar style. I mean, they both did the bombs away.
5: Yeah, so they both did, both did the bombs away. Pat learned quite a bit from Ray in the ring, but of course Pat had his own flavor. And then later on, he blossomed and he, but just their chemistry was incredible, both on the microphone in the ring. Um, you know, there, there are people that I think they just they just have a natural knack. Of course they, you know, they have exposure from other uh, great wrestling talents and also their experience that they acquire uh, to hone their skills. But there are just some people who just basically have a natural knack for wrestling. They're gifted. I mean, this is what they were born to do. And it just happened to be, you know, by chance that you had two of them were working in the same territory uh, and we were working as partners in the same at the same time, in the same era.
0: In researching when it was big time, I know you spoke to a lot of the different fans, the Bay Area fans who saw Stevens and Patterson. What did they say? I mean, they had seen various wrestlers come and go. What did they think of that unit, that tag team?
5: Pretty much the kind of consensus that, you know, they, they go along with, with uh, what, what uh, Dory Funk Jr. said. Dory Funk Jr. said that they were probably the greatest tag team of the 60s. The Bay Area fans would agree with that, you know, but even go beyond that, and many of them say that they were the greatest tag team of all time. But definitely probably the greatest tag team of the 60s, you know, not just in Northern California, but anywhere.
0: They had, what, an almost two-year run as the World Tag Team Champions?
5: Exactly. As the World Tied Team Champions. And then not just in San Francisco, they also defended in Hawaii. They did tours of the Pacific Northwest, you know. And, uh, you know, and at that time in Northern California, you had some of the greatest talent coming in. I mean, Roy Shire was a genius. He wasn't a very affable person. You know, he wasn't exactly uh, a very congenial, but he was a great businessman and he was able to maintain connections. Uh, with people that he worked with in the various territories, a lot of people forget that he was a, a great talent in the ring before becoming a great promoter. And he, he paid well. He, he knew he was smart enough to understand that in order to get great talent, he had to pay them well enough to make to give them the incentive to go in there and work for him, whether it's a short term or long time basis. So he had some of the greatest talent. You know, his network with Johnny Doyle and Jim Barnett, uh, Joe Blanchard. Uh, he had a lot of great talent was funneling into there uh, at various times. So, um, you know, it
0: was, just, it, it was just incredible. What was the relationship like, to the best of your knowledge, between Pat Patterson and Roy Shire, especially in those early years? Uh,
5: Roy was not the most tolerant man, you know, on and, and a, and a personal uh, level. You know, he, he didn't really care for people of color too much. You know, he definitely didn't care for, you know, homosexuals, people who were of different sexuality. Um, he was very blunt with Pat, you know, when they were first first uh, – TV taping that they did, even before uh you know Pat ever worked the Cow Palace show. You know Roy turned around and blankly asked uh, Pat in the car ride. I guess they were just familiarizing each other. You know Pat didn't know the area, so he was riding with Roy, and Roy turned around and said, "I, I heard you're queer." I mean, not exactly the most sensitive question you can ask someone, but you know over time, though, even though he didn't, Roy didn't really you know care for things like uh, people who were different, he, uh, he understood green. Green was going to money. So he realized that Pat was a great talent. You know, and he can make great money with him. And of course he did. So um, he started to develop a respect for him, about as, respect, as much respect as you can expect from somebody like Rorschach.
0: So Pat comes in as a heel. Him and Stevens become a tag team. They take off. And then towards the end of the decade, some things start to change. Pat takes the better part of a year to go to West Texas and work for the Funks. Ray Stevens is doing various things. I know he goes to Australia. And by the time they're both in the territory again at the same time, Ray Stevens is now a babyface, and Pat Patterson, who was the junior member of the tag team, is now the heel. Talk a little bit about this, and of course, what would lead into a major feud: Pat Patterson versus Ray Stevens.
5: Yeah, as we mentioned, you know, you know, it's important to, to keep things fresh, and we uh, really weren't going to go wrong with having Ray Stevens and and. Pat Patterson. And we're talking in the territory days. People they didn't really stay in the area too long unless they were, you know, successful, maybe six months at the most. If they were doing really well, maybe they might stay a year. I mean, these guys were there for years. The question is what what to do with them? You know, you still need to keep things fresh. So Ray comes back. Uh, he comes back from a tour of Japan. And the storyline was essentially that, you know, that during that time, you know, he's chilling with Bruno San Martino, who had been great, engaged in a, in, a, in a feud not too long before at the Cow Palace. And, uh, in japan and uh he comes back and he says well you know I, you know i've changed my ways i started wrestling a little bit differently when i was in japan so now i'm going to you know wrestle a little bit differently and uh, so now he becomes a baby face uh and the storyline was that pat patterson was upset he, ex- he expected here comes ray you know things going to be the same we're going to take over again you know like just like we did before you know the boys are back in town you know we're going to run amok and that was not the case So he's very disappointed and uh so he had a lot of resentment. Uh, it wasn't just a matter of rivalry in the ring, you know, and rivalry over a championship. It was a lot of resentment that, that basically Ray had turned his, his back on him, you know, and uh, so now you had the two biggest stars in the territory, and uh, they're going to face each other. I mean, it was it was a dream matchup, you know. But the, and it was interesting because you had the fans were divided, you know, uh, even though uh, Pat was a heel, there was some who, who really you know, it was, it was one of those territories in San Francisco where you actually had a a little greater amount of fans who actually loved the heels over the over the babyfaces. So uh, when they were getting the ring, Ray Ray was overall was the favorite, but there was still Pat still did have a pretty strong following, and even some of the fans felt that that Ray basically had portrayed uh, Pat Patterson. So it was a very very intense, you know, feud that they had in the ring, and they just produced some, some incredible magical moments.
0: And there were some weird moments. In terms of injuries that happened in the middle of that feud, because didn't Patterson break his leg against Stevens, and then Stevens—I forget the exact injury—but he got hurt in another racing accident before one of their matches, right?
5: The Stevens stuff happened prior to. Well, actually, no, no, that's, that's right. Ray um, well, got hurt so many damn times, um, but <laughs> Pat legitimately uh, did break his leg. He tried to do the bombs away and ended up on the concrete floor, so it was a legitimate injury. Which they actually worked in a, into an angle that was you know, during the time he was he was recuperating and coming back that provided some of the more hilarious promos, you know, uh prior to his uh past return to the ring. But yes, um when they finally were gonna get together, um, and this is the second time it happened, the first time it happened with Pepper Gomez where just his extra extracurricular activities, you know, this is that you know, he went motorcycle hill climbing and he would race at Sonoma on the motorcycles. Uh he was involved in rodeos and so forth but yeah, he had another, another injury. Um, this time it was a go-kart racing. Although the story actually changed a couple of times. Some fans, uh, were told that it was a, a bull race. Uh, he was riding, uh, riding bulls in Bakersfield at a rodeo and then the, the door swung open on the gate, hit him in the face. But, uh, but he actually was in a go-kart race and, uh, he, uh, broke his jaw. His face was all bruised up and, uh, they are supposed to meet, and uh, instead of that evening, uh, Ray shows up at the Kakao Palace, and he's dressed up in a suit, and his face, he's obviously uh, he's bearing, uh, looking the worst for wear, and uh, he has to forfeit uh, the, the U.S. Uh, heavyweight championship, and thus, uh, Pat, you know, without having to actually wrestle Ray, is now the United States heavyweight champion.
0: To fast forward a little bit ahead, because they are so interconnected, Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens. Pat would, of course, stay around for several years after Ray Stevens left for the AWA. Why did Ray Stevens leave San Francisco?
5: Uh, it was a combination of things. Um, you know, Partly he was—he uh, had been there for so long in San Francisco, um, but a big part of it was uh, he was having tax problems. I mean, he was having tax problems that went back for over a decade, um, back when he was at, in Indianapolis, when he first started working for Roy in Northern California, he was already having tax issues, whether it's the IRS and uh before he settled it uh uh in court so he was still having taxes issues. ray basically he was spent he would go through money faster than he can make it um he was always buying the latest toys he was very generous with his friends you know he picked up the tabs and so forth and uh it was just like basically like he suffered from peter pan syndrome you know he just never grew up and, and, there, and you know for a lot of guys a lot of people they thought know, there was always another payday. you know for a town like ray Stevens there often was but um just very very terrible with the money. And, uh, so as a result, he got in trouble with the IRS too. And, uh, so he had a chance to be able to basically reinvent himself to some extent in a new territory. And, uh, Vern had been pursuing him for a long time and, uh, offered to help him with his tax problems as well as give him a, uh, you know, a strong push in the AWA. And so, uh, Ray took advantage of it and went left in the 1971.
0: And obviously that changes things in San Francisco because other than some brief stays away where he went to Australia, or, you know, a few other places, Ray Stevens was the mainstay in San Francisco, and now he's gone, really puts Pat in even a bigger position there. And of course, shortly after that, he would start teaming with superstar Billy Graham. What can you tell us about superstar Billy Graham's emergence in San Francisco and Pat Patterson's role in getting him over?
5: Well, Billy and Pat actually were were teaming before Ray had left. So actually, Ray, was he was even a great influence on him as well, too. But of course, uh, you know, teaming with Pat, you know, on the road and working night in and night out. I mean, uh, Billy Graham and rightfully so, you know, he was so green at the time, but he gave Pat a lot of credit. You know, I believe in, in his autobiography refers to uh, working for uh, his time, working for Roy Shire, uh, being around Roy Shire, working with Pat night in and night out, uh, working against Ray on the opposite side of the, the ring um as his master's degree in mark manipulation you know uh essentially ring psychology and that's really was the strongest part of, of billy graham's game you know it wasn't really his ring work you know and, but it was his promo skills and uh and of course his ability to uh employ psychology in the ring and uh so you know past influence over billy and billy's you know has never been shy about you know giving him credit you know was was tremendous you know it was tremendous impact he came. Billy came in from LA, where he wasn't used all that well because he just frankly wasn't a very good worker. But he didn't have. He had Charlie Motto in, in Southern California was uh, was helping him out some. But you know, Charlie had a tremendous amount of responsibility, so he couldn't really you know be a strong tutor for him. You know, and uh, you know he was partnering with Jerry Graham, which he could earn something from. But Jerry was you know was you know faced down and in, in his vomit half the time, unfortunately. And uh, so he couldn't have had as much of an impact on Billy as as he possibly could have. Um, So it was a tremendous time for Billy Graham. Um, Probably the the time period which he learned the most in
0: professional wrestling was uh, working alongside Pat. Let's talk about 1972, where Pat Patterson finally turns babyface in San Francisco. What can you tell us about that?
5: Um, That was a situation he had been uh, teaming often with uh, Paul DeMarco and uh, Lars Anderson. And uh, with some of the other heels and uh, there was a situation where there was, there was a, uh, there were rivals for the U S uh, heavyweight championship. And so uh, Rocky Johnson came to his aid when he was uh, being doubled, when uh, Pat was being double teamed in the ring by Anderson DeMarco. And it was just kind of one of those things, you know, where just, it was a fluke thing. It was kind of a, a instinctive, you know, response on the part of Rocky, you know, it was kind of more like the, the enemy of the enemy is my friend kind of situation and uh but the response you know that the, the fans had to the idea that perhaps you know pat could turn into a baby face was overwhelming you know and fans could be you know of course could be such fickle bunches you know so um so they ran with it and uh, it was just he was just as loved as he had been hated when he was a heel
0: do you think he enjoyed being a babyface after years of being one of the top heels?
5: Um. Yeah, but I would say he he, would, he did. You know, I don't. I don't think he's he's really concerned about the fans' uh, reception. You know, you know, as as a heel, if you're able to do your job effectively, you want the fans to hate you. You know, it means more money in your pocket. It means you're doing you're doing your job. But it prolonged his longevity uh, in the promotion. San Francisco was such a great place to work cuz you got paid well, the drives were short for uh for Pat Patterson also too, the community that he lived in. Um for someone who was homosexual, uh it was a lot more comfortable community for him to live in. Um so he, he loved the lifestyle, he loved he loved where he was living, he loved Northern California. And uh you know, so if he was able to prolong his stay in his career there and, and by training baby phase, he was all for it.
0: Now Pat would eventually win the annual San Francisco Battle Royal, and I believe it's the Battle Royal in San Francisco, and of course l a had one too. But knowing of those and thinking about those and being a part of those, that helped lead to the creation of the Royal Rumble, correct? um yeah, that's
5: that's what it's uh it definitely had to influence him. Their battle royals were a lot different uh then battle royals elsewhere you know other places battle royals just basically was a gimmick you know to have once in a while there wasn't any real rhyme or reason for it that you haven't had one for a while it was novel and let's go ahead and let's uh let's have one you can have one you know every every couple months you know on the card uh but in la and uh in san francisco the annual battle royals were quite different you know they were spectacles it was basically the super bowl of, of professional wrestling for their territories particularly LA because just because of the proximity where it was located, you know, the, they got a lot of coverage in the wrestling magazines from that. Whereas uh, more so than they normally did uh, because of the battle Royal and uh, in San Francisco, I mean, Roy was really the one that, that invented it. Uh, it was something that, uh, that Mike LaBelle, when they had, you know, borrowed the idea, asked asked uh, Roy for suggestions and you know ideas and so they can go ahead and uh, develop one of their own. But, uh, it was like i said it was it was a huge event it was a super bowl of the year and uh you know you had all these wrestlers come in from other areas as well too we we're flying for that, that that event um so it was it was really an extravaganza it wasn't just a gimmick match in San in- so
0: once pat turned babyface was it a big deal when he would reunite with ray stevens as a tag team
5: oh absolutely absolutely you know when um the pairing of ray stevens and, and and pat patterson was always magic regardless of whether they were on on opposite sides of the ring or whether they were as partners um, when they came in when ray would come in uh, occasionally they they actually wrestled a few times and neither one of them was necessarily a heel at that time of course they develop a storyline that would that would facilitate tension between the two characters because you got to have some kind of you know tension between them in order to make it more interesting in the building. No one wants to see a straight up in a scientific match. So, but when they actually joined together to to reunite as a team, even if briefly, I mean fans loved it. You know, anytime you can see them in the ring together, whether they were on the same team or you know or whether they're pairing up together, you know fans went crazy for it.
0: In mid 1977, Pat would end up in Florida, and really for the next several years, from Florida to the AWA to the WWF, he would be done with san francisco i know he won the battle royal in 81 but that was a completely different san francisco than he had left before what can you tell us about why he left san francisco and the relationship with roy shire what happened between the two of them
6: well pat was
5: able to benefit great every, everyone who worked for Roy Shire always benefited to some extent you know anyone who really was uh really took advantage of the situation i mean there are people who were experienced seasoned pros i mean were just stars who went in there and worked for Roy and they came away and said, you know, I was an even better wrestler after working for Roy. He was a phenomenal businessman. He was, he was a tremendous genius with a great, great mind for the business and for the psychology uh, and the, of the art form. Um, so Pat benefited greatly from it, but you know, just, just as Ray Stevens had done, Ray had benefited so much from Roy, but at the same time he was his own individual and he had his own innate abilities and so he was able to grow from that in his own way as well you know he he had his his own traits you know strong strong traits as as a wrestler um the same thing for pat you know he didn't really need roy as a mentor after a while but he learned tremendously from him I always gave him credit you know for for teaching him so much about the business but i think at, after a while you don't you don't want to be the pupil anymore you know you you want to be able to stand on your own two feet he was given a, a greater amount of responsibility you know over the years uh roy was always at the tv tapings in sacramento he was always at the cow Palace shows he was at the sacramento uh, house shows because he had a an interest i mean he was a booking agent people people, people sometimes mistakenly think that roy shire was was the promoter of northern california I mean, he was the booking agent of northern california you don't to be really a promoter in one sometimes in the case of Roy, because they made allowances for him because of all the money that, you know, his shows contributed, you know, to the state, uh, he was not only the promoter in San Francisco, but also co-promoter in Sacramento. But he was a booking agent for the for the area, and uh, he would have Pat essentially be his emissary on the road. He would be basically, you know, booking things. He would be the booker in, in, in the individual towns, making sure that everything was, was going according to the way Roy would have wanted it to go, you know. And uh, the wrestlers were being used uh, properly. They were—he was giving them the finishes. He would oversee things. He was uh, a strong influence in the town of Modesto, where we had a great relationship with promoter uh, Johnny Miller there, and uh, so he had a vested interest there. He wanted to get a piece of the promotion from Roy, and uh, you know he'd been there a long time. He was willing to invest money, but Roy, you know, he was—it was a control freak and uh he, he didn't want to give that to pat he uh while well, he gave had a lot of respect for for pat gave him a lot of responsibility you know I, I don't think he ever gave him quite his just due you know and i think uh pat was outgrowing his his then current role as far as uh, top star and, non- and and also essentially booker without necessarily having the booker talent uh title i should say And uh so they were butting heads. You know, there was conflict, you know, over the issue. Roy then he offered to straight out buy Roy, buy the promotion out from Roy, but Roy wasn't willing to sell. And uh so that again, you know, there was more conflict there. There was a conflict over a situation, um presumably uh a legal situation. You know, I don't know if there's any truth to that. No, that's just a rumor and that's uh from Bob Root, but I think you know, you have to take uh, anything Bob Roop says, you know, about Roy Shire with, with with a little bit of a grain of salt, um, just because of his personal feelings. But essentially, it was really over the way, you know, Pat's, Pat's role was. He, he had outgrown his his current role, and uh, he wanted to basically invest in the promotion. Roy wasn't having it, and they clashed over it. And that's what uh, led to Pat's departure. I mean, he, you know, had offers ever, elsewhere, so he decided to take up of the offers in uh, in Florida.
0: Yeah, there was a story, and I don't remember all the details, in your book. Wasn't there an incident between Roy and some bikers, and Pat was there but didn't get involved? Am I remembering things correctly? No, that's, that's correct. And that's the situation
5: that, that Bob says, you has know, led to conflict between uh, Roy and Pat. I don't know that it did. I've never been able to get any confirmation on that. They were on the road uh, in Sacramento area, and uh, there was a road incident, an accident. You know, there was a, a contingent of uh, bikers, the Hells Angels. Uh, there was an accident. a couple of there were, were injured. Um they thought Roy was was uh at fault and uh and essentially Roy ended up uh, getting out of the vehicle and reaching for his gun in the briefcase. They were gonna, gonna and uh they jumped him and uh Pat stood in the car. And uh so that may have also caused some conflict too. Um is it was it because you know pat stayed in the car i mean actually roy did tell pat you know look after after you know after roy's son you know and uh which pat did but at the same time pat didn't also get out to help roy at all you know but uh roy uh, uh bumps and some bruises but you know no serious injuries uh rube's contention was that um that pat wanted to perjure himself you know uh or, or Roy wanted Pat to perjure himself during uh, uh, the court case involved with that, but you know, uh, there's nothing that I that I've seen that come across that validates any any claims that might have made regarding that.
0: Pat would leave San Francisco. He would leave Roy Shire's promotion, and like we said before, he would go to Florida. He would go to the AWA, eventually the World Wrestling Federation, and in 1981, by that point in time, Vern Gagne is running san francisco and pat wins the annual battle royal what can you tell us about that period of time in san francisco and at that point 1981 a lot of things have happened the business has changed san francisco was not what it had previously been how much did stevens and patterson still mean to that area
5: when uh, roy had his uh 1981 battle royal actually was roy's battle royal well actually let me go ahead and cl- clarify that a little bit a couple of weeks prior to Roy's final wrestling show at Cal Palace, which was in January nineteen eighty one, it was Battle Royale, uh, Vern Garner had had his own uh wrestling show in uh in Oakland uh, across the bay. And uh so Vern was had already had T V set up there for several months and was having his show being broadcast in the area and then was and had his first show a few weeks prior to Roy's last show. And uh, Pat came in, flew in, uh, won a 1981 Battle Royal for Roy. Uh, Roy wasn't too happy about, you know, Pat working uh, Vern's sh- uh show a couple of weeks prior. But, you know, he already had Pat booked for his show. And uh, and of course, you know, Pat was just a, a tremendous one of the greatest stars ever in, in the Northern California area. So, you know, he wasn't going to ha- not have Pat on the show. I think it was very fitting that Pat went over in that battle role, the final one that Roy would have, you know. And uh, you know, there was announcements for for a show in February that was not to be. Uh Roy's final show was that Cal Palace show. Vern Ganya essentially took over the area in Northern California from that point on. Um it, it was very important for Pat and Ray to be a part of Vern's promotion in, in whatever extent that they could be. Vern was smart. He understood that. Leo Nomenini, who was the local promoter for, uh, or essentially the, the front man for, um, for Vern Gagne in the Bay Area, uh, understood that as well, too. So uh, you'd have these heels, even when Ray and Pat were not going to be in the show, weren't even anticipated to be even be coming in for the, for several months. And in fact, uh, heels would go and do uh, the television promos for the local shows in Northern California, and they'd be challenging Ray and Pat. You know, they weren't even looking to, to to face them for several months, but they knew that they can get over by invoking their names and issuing the challenge. I mean, that's just how huge they were. I mean, even a decade over I mean, thirty, forty years after Pat had uh had, had last uh left or last worked for Roy Shire, um they were still inviting pat you know various local uh promoters were inviting pat to come down and do their shows and reunions and so forth and, and do uh signings and meeting and greet. and uh it was just had an overwhelming response i mean i just said uh, they were just so strongly identified with with bay area wrestling both pat patterson and ray stevens i mean over a decade after you know ray retired i mean they made it ray stevens day you know in the, in the bay area you know you, you just cannot separate, I mean for a lot of people when you think of pat patterson and ray stevens in terms of northern california pro wrestling they were northern california pro wrestling
0: well that kind of goes into my final question rock looking back on the entirety of pat patterson's run in san francisco what is the legacy he leaves behind
5: that uh you always got your money's worth when you watch pat i mean just extremely compelling performer you know and is i mean all the way around he had he had all the tools all the gifts his role that he played was integral in 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 the the success of uh russia's promotion you um, know for you know off and on for like 17 years i mean he did it all he was a baby face he was a heel he was a champion you know he was uh essentially the booker you know he just he just wanted the cornerstones of that of the history of that region's uh you know pro wrestling history i mean you just it wouldn't have been the same without pat patterson you know just one of those things where you know he the opportunity presented itself to him and uh he was able to take advantage of it and uh you know he's people like i said you know as you mentioned before when people talk about san francisco wrestling you know for, for many of them it was pat patterson and uh ray Stevens. so it wouldn't have been the same when, when uh, if Pat hadn't been there. I mean, it's, his, uh, his impact was just tremendous, and uh, decades later on, uh, people still fondly remember in detail the way they made him feel. You know, whether and they're grateful for it, whether he made them uh, love him or whether they made, he made them hate them. Uh, they're very appreciative of, uh, of all his contributions uh, to the body of work in Northern California pro wrestling.
0: Bertrand, of course, we're focusing on some of the places where Pat spent a large period of time, whether it was Portland or whether it was San Francisco, but there were other places that Pat spent time, including Arizona and West Texas. He went for a tour of Japan, of course, and Florida. What did Pat say about some of these territories where he didn't even spend a whole year there?
1: I mean, those were not his favorite, that's for sure. I mean, uh, San Francisco, that was where he left his heart to quote the song often enough the promoter were were in some cases minor league or he was just there for a short period as he was you know working an angle out of the San Francisco territory or where when he came to Florida I mean he didn't get along with Johnny Valentine uh, who was the booker and you know Pat was supposed to be helping but he couldn't do anything or get anything he wanted because uh, you know they didn't have the same uh, vision so those places, I mean, he was never a big fan of. Also, you know, coming out of Portland where they had uh, African American stars, going into Texas uh, where they still had like the different stalls for different colors, that was a very uh, difficult, you know. And Montreal, you know, is not perfect, but you know, I think we're we're more northeast in our vision of things than than south. Um, so, I mean, that, that was left an impression on him that, and especially as a gay man, you know, that if there could be so much difference for skin color, imagine for his sexual preference. So that was hard. There's not a lot of good memories. I mean, in the books, we, we glanced through everything, but it's not like there's a lot of story there and those were not his favorite years. That's for sure. We've
0: talked a little bit about the great love of his life, his great partnership with his friend, Louie. But the other great partnership of his life, a professional one, was, of course, Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens. What did Pat tell you about Ray Stevens?
1: I mean, he just loved Ray uh, because, you know, Ray was the life of the party. Was always almost, almost too much for Pat. Ray would uh, bring Pat along to to get to, to a girl, you know, and he would end up having Pat with a girls just so that he could get the girl so that's the type of man uh ray was and also you know pat was perfect in the sense that you know if uh, ray was in a bad shape and he had to, they had to go on the road pat was the perfect guy to pick him up get him dressed and get him in the car so that they could make the, t- the town so they they had a fantastic relationship and uh, i was uh, asked the question about uh this on a french podcast what is the match you would like to see if you could put pat in his prime in the main event of wrestlemania and you can do anything you want and my final answer was ray stevens and pat patterson one-on-one in their prime at wrestlemania that'd be the match i want to see because there's there's very little out there of them one-on-one in their prime So uh, I would love to see that because they they were the guys, they were the top workers of their era. And and their tag team is so revered today. I mean, I I would like to see more of that. And, you know, I think in the book we said something that he he keeps, you know, when he hears people knocking uh, in hotels room, that makes him think of that maybe Ray Ray's about to come back, you know, that he may just have been gone for a while. That's a little bit our, you know, he saw things. He, he wished Ray was had still been been around, and, and he regretted a lot. And he did, didn't have a lot of regret. He regretted uh, not asking for time off to us uh, to be there for his funeral uh, because uh, he felt really bad that he missed uh, Ray's funeral. Um, so, I mean, probably his best friend uh, in the business uh, at that point in time.
0: In 1977, Pat would finally leave San Francisco, leave the Bay Area, leave Roy Shire. Did he ever tell you why he decided that it was time to finally leave?
1: He he never went into details, and his memory was a little bit fuzzy about what happened exactly. He kind of remembered that there was that attempt to put together the money to buy the territory, and because he was basically running it, but he was not making the money of running the territory more than that he never went into any kind of details uh he has after years a lot of found me- more found memories than anything uh about this and he actually went back uh when he was working uh for I believe Vince senior i mean he, he was brought back for some battle royal and all that even if we we left on bad terms you know we knew what was good for business so i mean In wrestling, often enough, times heals all wounds. So he thought uh, Roy was a yeller, and that's the thing that he wanted not to be. So that's how I think he's remembered so fondly by talents that he worked with, is that Pat would, would listen, would offer ideas, would work with their ideas, but he was not a yeller. Because he didn't think wrestling was important enough, I believe, to, or should get you mad enough to start yelling at people. Uh, so he didn't want to be like Roy on that level, but, um, he never got into the greedy details. And, and the more details I was trying to get, usually that's when there was nothing new for him to offer. Uh, either it was too personal or he didn't want to tarnish uh, any reputation. He just, uh, he didn't want his book to be about the uh, wrestling stories or wrestling war or wrestling feud uh, between people behind the scene. He wanted it to be about his life and, and uh, the, the story of uh, that young kid in Montreal who, who slept in the closet and, and ended up sleeping in the biggest hotel in the world. Um, so they, he just, and, and in a lot of ways also, I mean, early on, I could see there was an issue with his memory. It was not as bad as, as it was about to get a few years later. But even there, you know, he would repeat some stuff and, and you know, go back to some of the same stories. Um, and when he just didn't remember something, they, there was no way of getting out, get, getting it out of him. It just never happened. So it's uh, it was there and it, it just was never going to get out if it was even possible.
0: Coming out of San Francisco, Pat would spend six months in Florida and then begin a year and a half run in the AWA. Let's go now to my conversation with AWA historian, George Shire. We continue our look at Pat Patterson's life and career by focusing on his run in the AWA and of course joining us to talk about the AWA, a popular guest on the Super Podcast, historian George Shire. George, thanks for being here today.
6: Brian, it's always a pleasure to talk with you about wrestling, and the only sad part is we're talking about those that passed, but always fun. It is sad to talk
0: about those that passed, but it's important to share the true story about what happened, and a lot of people are interested in knowing about things they didn't know about before, and in this case, so many people think about Pat Patterson in San Francisco or Pat Patterson for the World Wrestling Federation, but Pat had a pretty good little run in the AWA, and we're going to talk about that today. He, of course, would come there at the beginning of 1978 after finishing up his run in Florida. What can you tell me about where the AWA was as a promotion before Pat came in?
6: Well, it's interesting when you say he came in in 78, because if we go back about a year in uh, early 1977, Ray Stevens, who has long been associated with Pat Patterson, Ray Stevens had uh, been part of the Bobby Heenan family with Nick Bachwinkle, who was the world champion at the time, AWA champion. And Bobby Heenan also had the tag team champions, Lanza and Bobby Duncan. And here comes Ray Stevens into the family, and he's the only one without a title. And so there was an interesting buildup because every time Nick would, uh, every time Ray would try to interject something in an interview Bobby would interfere and say, just a minute, Ray, I got something I want to add. I was talking about the tag champs or about the or the singles champ. And when he would, Ray would interject, Nick Bockwinkle would say, uh, hold on a minute, uh, Ray, I got something I want to add. And this went on for a while where Ray Stevens, so you can tell they're building a, they're going to build a turn here at some point. And Ray is taking the back seat. Well, then they did the a uh, famous manager of the year segment in 1977. And this was when Bill Apter from the famous Apter magazines, Inside Wrestling, the Wrestler, came in to the AWA for All-Star Wrestling, and he was going to present Bobby Heenan with the manager of the year trophy. Now, you got to bear in mind this thing with Ray had been going on for a few weeks, and Ray has just been shut up. So they get into the ring to make the presentation for the trophy. And this, by the way, folks, is on YouTube. You can find this video. It's great. Because this is the climax of the previous interviews. Roger Kent, our, our wrestling announcer in the ring, is presenting, getting ready to, uh, along with Bill After, to present this trophy to Bobby Heenan. It's a little sidelight. If you look at the video really close, you can see referee George Gadaski. As soon as the trophy is presented to Heenan, Gadaski nudges Bill after, and he kind of nudges him towards the ropes and says, get out of the ring. Okay? So Bobby Heenan is exploding about being the manager of the year, second year in a row, and he's so proud of his tag team champions and his world champion, and Ray is in the ring with all of them. Lanza and Duncan congratulate him and then they step out of the ring, and then Nick tries to or intervenes and congratulates Bobby and Then, when Ray tries to congratulate him, Bobby says, "Ray, don't interrupt me, take your hands off him and Ray explodes, he goes nuts, he gets he knocks Bobby down, he hits Nick, he takes the trophy, he breaks it over the ring over the uh turnbuckle in the corner, smashes it, and as he does it, he says. This represents my contract with Bobby Heenan. So now Nick is furious because Ray turned on Heenan. He turned on him. Bobby or uh, Ray Stevens comes out and he says, There's a whole lot of things that are going wrong here that you people don't know about. And for weeks, they've made me feel like an idiot out here. Well, now raise the baby face. And you've got to remember that Nick and Ray had been a tag team at that point since 1972. So we got a five year Together with those two. And it was one of the few times when um, Nick Bachwinkle challenged a challenger to a match. And he wanted Ray, and Ray said, You got it. I'm going to end your title reign. So Ray did become a babyface. So for 1977, Ray is a babyface, several matches with Nick for the title around the circuit. He had several tag team title matches with Lanza and Duncombe. And Ray teamed with everybody. He teamed with Vern Gagne. He teamed with The Crusher. He teamed with Larry Hennig. He teamed with Billy Robinson. Both Greg and Jim, or Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel, all in attempts to get the title off of the the tag champs as well. So here's where it gets kind of interesting. We get to 1978. And of course, for the last year or so, this feud, this program with the Heenan family for Ray Stevens has sort of run its course as all feuds do, and Pat Patterson is announced as coming to the AWA. Now, the only thing they announced at the time was Pat Patterson is a, a world-renowned wrestler. He's held many championships, and he's coming into the AWA. It almost didn't happen, though, because Vern Gagne didn't want Pat Patterson to come in with blonde hair. And this was a behind-the-scenes thing that nobody knew at the time. Stevens had the bleach blonde hair. Bobby Heenan had the bleach blonde hair. You had Bobby Duncan with bleach blonde hair. Um, you know, everybody had blonde hair, and Vern didn't want another one. So Pat had literally told him, well, if I got to bleach my hair, or go back to, you know, brown or whatever his hair color was, he said, I'm not coming in. So Vern backed off and said, fine. Pat Patterson, in the first couple matches that he had, uh, singles matches, He'd get done with his match, and when Ray was wrestling, Pat would come to ringside. Really no connection between the two of them yet. But then when Pat would interfere and Ray would win, that's when it kind of the connection was, you know, made. And with no explanation over the past year, where and this is what I always found funny, Ray had been a popular babyface now for a year. With no explanation at all, he's all of a sudden with Patterson, and they're wrestling against the good guy tag teams. They were wrestling against uh, the High Flyers. They're wrestling against the Crusher and Igor, and uh, they did something really unique. They brought Rufus R. Jones was in the territory at the time, and they brought in Pat O'Connor, the former NWA champion, and they had him team with Rufus on on a couple of cards. They actually referred to a storyline that this is a team that can give Ray and Pat uh, some serious trouble because Rufus and Pat had never been defeated as a tag team. That's the way they were introduced. Now, they didn't say where they had wrestled together or anything, but they had wrestled in St. Louis almost exclusively, off and on for a long time in the early part of the 70s. And they do hold the distinction of never losing a tag team match, Rufus and Pat in St. Louis. So, though they never recognized titles in St. Louis, that is in itself kind of a title. So, they had them go against Nick and, or I'm sorry, Pat and Ray, and Pat and Ray won the match. And then they're beaten up on all the tag teams, and they're time to be, uh, the time comes for them to um, be number one contenders to get a chance at uh, Greg and Jim, who had now since then taken the title from lanza and Duncan. and the ironic thing happened where jim brunzel was playing in a charity softball team tournament here in the twin cities and he actually injured his leg he ended up with a serious staph infection he was out of wrestling for a couple months and um during that time frame they took the uh the old, we're going to take the title off of Greg and Jim because they're not defending its storyline. And because Nick and, or because I always want to say Nick and Ray because they were together so long. Pat and Ray were considered to be the logical number one contenders. Stanley Blackburn, in one of his famous edicts, said, by default and because they are the number one challengers, they are awarded the championship, the AWA title. So that's where Pat and Ray really excelled, and then they they acknowledged that they had been a team in the past, that they had held the championship, and they held they. It was funny. They said they held the World Tag Team Championship previously, never indicating that it was the NWA version out in San Francisco in the sixties. And they, you know, I think they relied on fans not being able to to know or even remember that it wasn't the AWA. But they did acknowledge that they were former tag team champions. So this was going on for a while. And here comes Vern Gagne. And he wants to, uh, along with Billy Robinson, they challenge Nick and Ray for the title. Well, they have a bunch bunch of matches around the circuit. And you got, I got to tell you something. You want to talk about, again, some great matches? Vern, Billy, Pat, Ray? You're talking classics here. I mean, they were good. Well, during the course of their series, together, Ray and Pat storyline injure Billy Robinson, put him out of action, and they're bragging about it. We're glad we injured that cockeyed coal miner, as Ray Stevens would say, got rid of him. So Vern Gagne, he plays the the usual, hey, I gotta I gotta avenge Billy on this, and this is ridiculous. These guys are running roughshod; they think they they nobody they, nobody can control them, and he said I've realized that what they did to Billy. Well, I'm going to point out that before Billy joined Vern, he had hooked up with Doug Gilbert. Uh, uh, Some people would remember him as the mass professional out in Atlanta in the 60s. But Doug Gilbert was a great baby face for years, and he had returned. And him and Billy had started out as a team, and then Billy teamed with Vern to get a better partner, so so to speak. So Billy's injured, and Vern says... I got to find myself a partner that can fight like they do because obviously they don't pay attention to the rules and I'm going to find that partner. Well, that starts the fans guessing. That's a good, you know, way to work the fans. Well, a week later, he comes up with the shocker of shockers. He's convinced Mad Dog Vashon to join him. And, you know, this is classic because Vern and Dog for the past decade and a half have been mortal enemies and had many, many classic battles over the title, everything. And uh, then, it, you know, can can the, the fans are saying, you know, can the dog be trusted? Can Vern trust Mad Dog? Is he going to turn on him? Is Vern going to be in the ring with three enemies instead of two? I mean, it's a classic tag team encounter. But Vernon and, and Dog, they come up with the idea saying, I don't like you and you don't like me. But we don't like Ray and Pat more, so we're going to work together. And that's what they said on their interviews. And, of course, uh, Pat and Ray, they're saying they're not going to get along. You know, they're not taking it seriously. Well, Vern and the dog end up, you know, getting the title from Pat and Ray. I'd also point out that during this time frame, the AWA is promoting out in California, in San Francisco. And uh, Nick and, or, geez, tell me when I say Nick hit me, would you? Pat and Ray are out there. And when they wrestle out there, they're baby faces and they're going against guys like Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis or some of the other heels. And Patira was out there, but when they're in the AWA proper, then they're wrestling against the baby faces because they're the heels. So that was a, that was a unique situation, but they held the title until they lost it to Vern and dog. And then Pretty much after that, they had some matches with Jesse and uh, Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis. And here in the proper AWA, and of course, in that match, we had two heel teams against each other. It was one of those where one guy hits the other guy, we cheer. They hit the other team, we cheer. You know, just both destroy each other. But uh, Ray and Pat were together then until 1979, the very early 80, early 1980. And then Pat was moving on to the uh wwf at that time and he ended up winning that phantom fictitious uh, intercontinental title in rio de janeiro came in as the first uh ic champion so that was kind of his run in the awa he he very seldom wrestled pat very seldom wrestled in singles matches uh after the initial coming into the territory and he and ray remained a team and a very potent one um there's another uh video of them on youtube where they're introduced on tv all-star wrestling and they're going to wrestle against uh frankie hill and frankie hill's partner is not there and they don't know where he is and they got to get the match going so out of the locker room comes billy robinson and billy robinson so they're going to have uh a protest there because they're not bringing in Robinson to wrestle. And Frankie Hill, for those that don't know, went on to the WWF as um, Jewel Strongbow, Jay Strongbow's wrestling Indian brother.
0: Well, a couple of questions for you. And one of them would be about something you brought up, which was Ray and Pat wrestling as a tag team as babyfaces in Northern California. Now this was an interesting period of time because Roy Shire began to shut down And right around the same time, Vern Gagne decided he wanted to start running shows in Northern California. What can you tell me about the AWA's expansion to California at that point in time? And also, how important were Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson to his success in Northern California?
6: I think they were vitally important because Vern hadn't been in uh, the Northern California for, you know, before this. And in order to go in there, and like you say, Roy Shire, who obviously, let's go back and point out that Roy Shire had a great connection for for a long, well, almost two decades with Ray and Pat. Because Pat Patterson had been out in California. He He held their tag team title, Roy Shire's tag team title, something like 19 different times with various partners, including Ray Stevens. And then Ray was out there for, you know, you go back to the 60s, the entire decade of the sixties, Ray Stevens was box office God out there in, in San Francisco. So, and he had turned baby at that point later on, you know, and that's the cycle. Most great heels eventually turned baby. And Ray was as popular as anybody in San Francisco. So when Vern wanted to go in there and Roy was already struggling, Roy Shire, he, um, Roy Shire was a brother to Ray, by the way, fictitiously when Ray was Ray Shire back in the early sixties. Um that's how they connected. But Roy Shire was folding down. So it was very important that if you had Ray and Pat on the card, it was going to generate the audience, at least the audience that remembered them from the Cow Palace days and everything. And obviously because they had both turned babyface in San Francisco uh years before, they um they had to be a baby face and that's why they would wrestle against the heel. I've got one match where they actually wrestled against, uh um, Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis and, and Ray and Pat were the, were the babies. But yeah, I think it was very important, Brian without them. I don't know that it would have been as successful. Um, and Vern wasn't in San Francisco for that long of a time, because as we moved further into the eighties, you know, that's when things started to fall apart all over the country. Um, As we got to 1984, when McMahon started his expansion and the rating of territories, and especially the AWA. So it was a short run. Well, of course, you got to see a lot
0: of great tag teams, and specifically, you got to see Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle. And that was the tag team maybe of the 70s for a lot of people. Ray and Pat may have been the tag team of the 60s for people, especially in San Francisco, but so many people talk about Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle. You finally got to see. Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson, legendary tag team from the 60s. At the end of the decade in the AWA, what is the legacy Pat Patterson leaves behind in the AWA? What can you tell me about what he meant to that period of time?
6: I think what he meant to that period of time was that um, he probably joining Ray again and re, re, you know starting that tag team over because it was interesting. In the 60s, I'm in the AWA. And I will always talk about how great the tag team of Larry Hennig and Harley Race were for the 60s for the AWA. But at the same time period, you had out in San Francisco, Stevens and Patterson, who were, if you picked up any wrestling magazine, those were the two tag teams that were prominently in all the ratings and talked about. So when Pat came to the AWA, I had never seen him with Ray Stevens. And I was excited about that. I will tell you, and this is just a personal opinion, I was sad that I got to see both of them when they were a little bit later in their careers as they were. And Ray is, I, Ray was, I think, what was he like four or five years older than Pat? Something like that. I'd have to look that one up, but they were older. Um, when I personally compare Stevens and Patterson to Stevens, and Bockwinkle, I like the Bockwinkle partnership better. I think their matches were better. And of course, you got to remember that's five years earlier when they started together. But I, it was great to see Ray and Pat and they definitely had their greatest gimmick was that because they were blonde, and this is why it was foolish for Vern to ever suggest that Pat doesn't come in with blonde hair. Their greatest gimmick was that they looked enough alike, and they would dress alike. I mean, the same trunks and the boots and that sort of thing. And they had that gimmick down where they could they could change places and the referee would play dumb and not notice that they had done it. But the fans would see it. And of course, then they're screaming at the ref. So that was a great way to work the crowd. They wouldn't have been able to pull it off with two different hair colors. So that, And I, I don't know if they did that in San Francisco, previously i'm guessing they may have but uh, it was a great way to work the crowd because they could switch places one could get knocked out of the ring and the other one would get in and the ref would you know not see it which is great because you always have to have a great blind referee in a match to make it good and uh, so yeah that's my comparison I, i think that's what pat uh brought to the awa he completed ray steven's story and i will point out that you know because ray was suddenly a, a heel again with really no explanation and no mention of his being a babyface for a year he had now rejoined the bobby heenan family because ray and pat and nick were working six man matches together and bobby heenan was managing them and it just seemed like it that the feud between heenan and stevens never happened and there was no mention of it Except, you know, those of us that were cognizant and and sober, we remembered it.
0: Coming out of the AWA, Pat Patterson would then go to the World Wrestling Federation, where he famously had four Madison Square Garden main events against Bob Backlund, beginning a pretty legendary run as a wrestler, then a commentator, and of course, a creative executive for Vince McMahon Jr.'s World Wrestling Federation. Bertrand, what did Pat tell you about going to the WWF for the first time, and what were his impressions? What were his aspirations going to the Northeast?
1: I mean, he was surprised because uh, he, he did not expect uh, the the big guy territory to call him. You know, he was a draw; he was a pro, proven draw, but he was a small guy for for compared to the land of giants. Uh, but he had met. Um, Vince Sr. at an NWA convention that Shire had brought him to. And, you know, Pat being Pat, you know, he was not always at, at the wrestling meeting, so often enough he was at the bar entertaining the, 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 the wives of uh, the different promoters. And he, he got himself over with Vince's wife. And, and, you know, she felt you know that he was just not like any of the other wrestler. that he was someone that she could socialize with, and that, that was different from the other wrestlers. So, you know, that's how that relationship started. And he wanted Vern Gagne to tell him, okay, what are we going to be doing? And Vince, uh, Vince Vern told him, well, I don't tell my secret. You know, I'm, you know, I'm the promoter. So you do whatever I say. And Ray was more uh, easygoing on this, you know? So, and for Pat, basically Minnesota was redoing what they, already done in san francisco so he told verne you know well i'm not going to tell you what i'm going to be doing which was that he had that offer from new york in his pocket and he decided to go for it also that would bring him closer to montreal and he had not seen his family on a on a regular basis he had to basically do red-eye flight just to to be there for his mother's funeral Uh, which he was very close to. So for him, I mean, being back close to home was also a very important uh, part of the process of uh, going to New York.
0: What did he tell you about Vince McMahon Jr.? Of course, they would grow to be very close. He would grow to be close with Vince's entire family. But at first, he was the son of the promoter and the commentator when Pat would start doing commentary. They were partners on commentary. What did he tell you about the early years of his relationship with Vince McMahon Jr.?
1: I mean, they, they, they got along almost right from the start. And, and they, they, they would develop more almost sort of a brotherly relationship than, than, than just co-worker or anything like that. And, and you have to understand that the bound is very deep, is that on his deadbed, Vince Sr. asked Pat to take care of Andre and take care of his son. So for Pat, loyalty was foremost, and, and you know he was loyal to Vince uh, to the end. Um, so that that's the type of relationship they built right from the start, and, uh, and and later on. And I don't want to get us too ahead in the story, but uh, they 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 had a great relationship from the start, and. Had understood who, who would end up being the owner in this, and who was going to be the final decision maker, and he was never going to be uh, the one dying on an idea uh, to get it over uh, if it it was not going to work. So that that's also an important lesson, I, I think, in wrestling. Um, and they they, I mean, to to the last few years when he talked about Vince, it was very funny. He could not believe Vince was still working because he was tired himself and he didn't want to travel all the time and he didn't want to work all the time but he was always amazed how vince also was very loyal to him uh as you know when they were going to television in the last few years i mean pat was always going to fly with vince on the private plane and and sometimes pat would feel bad because you have people working hard for you and they're in the mix thing now, and I don't do anything. And he said, "Pat, you should be there. If you would not be there, it would not be normal." And, and I remember early on when we started on the book, the first year or so. Uh, you know, I would know when he was at, when Pat was at TV, and he would tell me, "Oh, Vince, tell me that just me being there makes a difference." And I could follow the show. And when Pat was there, we had better show than when Pat was not there. <laughs> so i thought that was you know and, and maybe that explained the whole pandemic stories that we're getting because he didn't go to any of those shows <laughs> so it's like uh you know he was very special and, and he had a way of communicating with vince and understanding what vince wanted and presenting new stories to vince so that vince could would consider something and, and i think that was a very is a very special talent and i think it's jj dylan who's uh said that a lot yeah. of the There's a lot of credit to give to Pat Patterson for the WWE success, and I think that's true.
0: When it comes to Pat in the ring for the World Wrestling Federation, a lot of fans may remember him and Ted DiBiase first for the North American title, and then Pat, of course, becoming the first Intercontinental Champion. Of course, Pat and Ken Patera. We mentioned before the four matches against Bob Backlund. Later on, there was a feud with Angelo King Kong Mosca, but the one people still talk about to this day, the match that people still watch, was the alley fight Madison Square Garden, Sergeant Slaughter versus Pat Patterson, all set up with that big angle on TV, the Cobra Clutch Challenge. What did Pat tell you about that match with Sergeant Slaughter? And what did he think of Sergeant Slaughter?
1: He was a very good friend with Slaughter. I mean, he's the one who got him into uh, the WWE. Uh, he knew him, by, I believe, from the AWA or something like that and you know he was starting to get over in the south and you know he's the one who put in the words i mean th- there's there's a lot of uh unsaid in this but you know when when the all the awa guys came to new york i mean the conduit was pat that there's no doubt uh, and the same a lot of the people that came in pat knew of some way shape or form you know even later on from working florida or working san francisco or uh, working portland working minnesota you know he was the conduit in getting a lot of those guys on board and and a lot of those guys jumping to new york so that that you know because wrestling especially in those days worked a lot on you know word and being confident that you were going to get a good Chance to shine, you know, or a fresh shot and people believe in Pat's word. Pat's word was gold, you know. So it was, uh, he loved that match is one of his favorite. I mean, I think he loved the, the concept and the feud with Backlund of being the only one having four main events in a row at, at the garden. But the, the match that he loved and and remember and was uh, most proud of was the alley fight, obviously.
0: When the World Wrestling Federation would finally start airing in Montreal, Pat was on TV, and really, when you think about it, for the most part, Pat, despite growing up in Montreal, didn't spend a lot of time there as a professional wrestler. What was that like? And I'm asking you, actually, personally, as a fan from that period of time, Bertrand, in the 80s, when all of a sudden Pat Patterson was on TV in Montreal.
1: I mean... He had come in from New York once he was based in New York in 1980, 1981, 1983. He had good run here with Ray Rougeau. He turned ill, and he had that amazing gimmick of being Le Rêve de Québec, the dream of the province of Quebec, because he was he had changed his name to an English name. He had become a big star in the United States of America, and he was now bigger, better than any Quebecers. That was his gimmick. And to this day, people remembers that. I mean, he, he would tell me, oh, I mean, I was in uh, Texas, and uh, I'm at the hotel, and I'm waiting for a cab. And this guy comes up to me and starts speaking French to me. You're that Maudie French, uh, Greg du Québec. And he would be so happy. People, like, twenty, thirty 30 years later, I mean, they would, like, still remember that character from uh, that was on TV uh, a couple of years in the early 80s. So when the WWE took over, I mean, obviously, he was put on the French show because he already had a good name in Montreal. He could speak French. And they they developed that 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 uh, Piper's Pit uh, version called the Brunch with Pat in French where he would interview all the wrestlers and, and the wrestler would give real answer to his question. And then he would translate in French and say the most obnoxious thing possible that had nothing to do with the answer. So, I mean... And- <laughs> The wrestler would look at him funny, saying, "I'm not sure you're 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 translating," and so there's a bunch of funny clip of him doing that and having a lot of fun with it. So that when I produced that segment with him, I mean, we had a lot of fun with it, and we, you know, we we had to to play around to find the the, the, the timing of it, but we ended up doing something that was very close to that concept. Um, so it was he was really, I remember, I hated hated. Pat Patterson as a kid I was like he was so obnoxious you know he he. but I remember also that with my eyes of today he was a an amazing worker bumping and doing things that the other guys not, not necessarily did and I remember you know there's a big show at one point at the forum where I, there's like four main events so there's like the Rougeau match is the main event. The Bravo match is the main event. The Martel match is the main event. You know, everybody is getting their build as the main event. But the last match of the night is the match with Patterson and the Rougeau Because, well, obviously nobody wanted to follow them up. And, you know, I remember that match as being the best match of the night. Even though I also remember being surprised that Bravo was not the last match. But I now with my eyes of today, I see why they put him there. And also why... You know, he ended up working with Bravo and Martel in the main events because he was so good. They imagined being an up-and-comer and having the chance to work with Pat Patterson uh, in his prime, or at least close to his prime. And I am i consider myself privileged to have seen those live, especially that, that time period that he was here. That's the time period where there's less footage of international wrestling available. So, you know, uh, he was just an amazing character. And an amazing worker.
0: Pat is always someone who had a lot of ideas, and of course, he worked for someone who, although abrasive, was considered a booking genius in Roy Shire. Under Vince McMahon, Pat would finally get to have his creative visions fulfilled, although it wasn't always easy. Of course, he came up with the Royal Rumble, he came up with a lot of the big finishes, the big matches that people remember. How much did it mean to Pat to finally be in a position where, I don't know if booker is the right term, because really Vince McMahon was his own booker, but Pat was the one who was the creative lead on so many things during the biggest period of business for the World Wrestling Federation. Talk a little bit about Pat as a creative executive, Pat as an agent for wrestlers, giving them the finishes. How much did he enjoy
1: that? He loved being the teacher. He loved being able to transmit his knowledge and, and, and make them understand. Um, but, you know, he was funny in that manner, is that he would look at you funny when you would say Booker or stories. And he was like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about type look. So, I mean, and, and he didn't like to go into the details. And also there was a lot of blanks in there. Uh uh I, I'm afraid. But it's it's like uh for him it was work, eh? So uh we can all relate to the fact that sometimes we don't remember what we did at work last week. <laughs> so in Pat's case, I mean he got burned out a few times working for Vince where he quit or asked to retire and but Vince always managed to find a way to bring him back. And the last time he promised him, you know, to let him go home whenever he wanted, but that to at least keep him on the payroll and keep him working as, as much as Pat wanted to work. So for Pat, it was, it was never something that you know, we watched it and we lived it and and we have so great memories of some of the, the stuff he did, but for him it was uh different. Uh he has a few good stories, like he loved the WrestleMania Six main event because he saw his vision his whole vision of the main event come to life in front of such a large crowd. So that he loved and, and he loved the real emotion that the warrior had after the match, uh, about the way everything ended up planning as they w- they had uh, prepared. But those stories are very, uh, they, there was not a lot of those. And, and I'm sorry, I tried if it's not in the book, believe me, I asked about it and he just didn't have anything to say about it. He didn't remember in some maybe cases he didn't want to really talk about that, but it, it never felt really like that more or less like I don't remember enough to tell you anything <laughs> and and for him that was just normal i mean he you know I don't remember what I did last week at at work or what i even even less what I did fourteen years ago at my other job, you know. So it's, uh, there, there was a lot of that, uh, because for Pat, it's not like he was keeping notes of what he was doing or, you know, you know, remembering things or keeping mementos or anything like that. Uh, I think when we did the book, uh, we, he had a bunch of whole albums and those were all Louis. <laughs> Louis had put those together. So thank you, Louis. And so there was Boston, Portland up until the early days in New York when he was a talent and it was all Louis taking pictures and putting them into albums and taking a times to to put that together for him and them. It was, he was never big on. So after Louis was gone, there was barely anything. And in the time he was an executive, there there was barely any pictures. So, I mean, it, it just became work. And so in a sense that that's what explained his longevity, but at the same time, you-you would have loved him to have the all you know I love the Yoda comparison for for Pat you would have loved him to 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 be able to tell, oh, I was sitting in the dressing-room and then I had uh, Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, and I told Shawn this and I told Bret this he didn't remember things in that manner or he never verbalized them in 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 this manner for him, it was the memory of the match of the emotion he felt when he saw the match that's what he remembered
0: how much pride did Pat take in developing the royal rumble
1: as year went by and he saw the success of the show you know, he was very happy about it, and he loved the fact that Vince didn't like the idea at the, at the top. And you know, he loved telling the story of Vince telling Ebersol, "Well, Pat, tell, tell, tell him about your stupid idea." And he loved saying, "Well, first off, Vince, it's not a stupid idea." And then he would put the idea over how he pitched it to Ebersol, and all Ebersol thought it was great. And then they, they 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 put Pat in charge of putting the first World Rumble together. So I mean, and as the years went by, with uh, now the Rumble being in the stadium and all that, he was just mind blown by how popular the event became. Uh, and you know, I don't think you realize all of it. You know, that's going to make him immortal. I mean, every year at the Royal Rumble, they're going to somehow mention Pat Patterson, and I'm hoping they're going to do something special, uh, anything uh, to make it part. Of the show somehow. So he took a lot of pride in it because he saw how much people loved this, the match and, and it was his idea to begin with. And he got the credit for it, as he would say.
0: Well, Bertrand, one of the things we have to talk about are the WWE sex scandals of the early 1990s because Pat certainly got swept up in it, where for a time he resigned from the World Wrestling Federation and what had happened. And feel free to jump in or correct me where I'm wrong. But there were accusations made, credible accusations, against Mel Phillips and Terry Garvin, leading to both men being fired from the World Wrestling Federation. Now, Terry Garvin was an actual executive there. Mel Phillips was, I believe, technically an independent contractor, but he was the ring announcer on a lot of shows. He did a lot of different jobs for the World Wrestling Federation. Pat ended up getting accused also by someone named Murray Hodgson who it would turn out was a con artist. And unfortunately, Pat got swept up in the scandals to the point where I think there's some confusion today when people talk about that period of time. And they say, oh, it was Mel Phillips and Terry Garvin and Pat Patterson because he did leave for a period of time there. What can you tell us about that period? Early 1992, the WWF sex scandals, and what did Pat tell you? about that period of time did he think it was just persecution because he was a gay man what were pat's thoughts and again let's clear the air because i think there are a lot of fans out there who don't know the whole story
1: i, I believe so too and um often enough you know when something is exposed people always remember what happened when it was told but if after that Somebody gets cleared, or somebody comes up in his own book and say, "Oh, I lied about Pat Patterson." Well, that get like ten page in in the newspaper and not front page. So, I mean, for Pat, I mean that was a subject I I I wanted to approach, and it took quite a while before I got there, uh, as this was a a very uh, touchy subject. That's not something he loved to talk about. Obviously, I mean, for him, that's the worst time of his life. And, you know, I had to make the whole pitch to him about it. You know, this is your book. If you don't talk about it, people are going to say, you know, you're avoiding. So therefore, you're guilty. And, you know, to him, it was like, you know, the less I talk about it, the better. Because no matter what I say, you know, people are going to do what they do. And, and just remember the accusation and not the retraction and, and his name being cleared of anything. Of everything, actually. So. He, he, he finally went on and, and talked about it and, and that's the only time he cried and, and he was uh, very vulnerable talking about it, uh, how much Louis was disgusted with the whole situation and how much Louis backed him up because he knew what kind of a man he was. But at the same time, as he had promised Senior, I mean, he was going to be loyal to his son and if his presence was going to be what is was turning out to be with that whole thing, I mean, his reaction was that he needed to 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 resign out of loyalty, out of the loyalty to the company. But at the same time, the same loyalty was on the other side, and, and they did hired a private investigation firm uh, to talk to everyone at the office, and, and they cleared Pat of anything. I mean, Pat was so popular. I mean, the phrase they use is that you could run for president, a- and I haven't met anyone traveling with Pat who would just not just jumped in Pat's arm to hug him. Uh, you know, Paul Ondorf comes to mind. I mean, you you know, sometimes he would like, he's in a convention and he's like, rah, rah, rah. And he's very, you know, grumpy. And then Pat shows up and it's like, he's a new man. Oh, Pat. Oh, Pat, Pat. And everybody loved Pat. And so there was one man who, who threw him under the bus, and uh, that person uh, told the lie and told afterwards in his biography that it was a lie. And you know, the, the old Murray thing was cleared, and Pat goes we go into details on on Pat's perception of that situation. And it was so hard to him because he was gay, yes, but he never touched anyone. Uh, And there there never was any kind of criminal investigation. There was never any criminal charges. And except for the lies that were proven as lie, there's never been any other, you know, testimony of anything. Was Pat uh, grumpy and a little bit raunchy in his jokes? Uh, Yes, he is. Uh, You know, he's a man of his time. Uh, You know, he was born in the 40s. Uh, He wasn't born in 2020. Um, But never have I seen Pat do anything wrong. And, you know, that night, I mean, was very emotional because I could see how hard it is. And he never spoke about it afterwards. Uh, And I was very happy also because the story in the book is what Pat approved. That's what Pat said. And WWE didn't change one comma in the whole thing or nothing they said if it's Pat's story that's good for us there's nothing wrong legally in the way it's presented it can run as it is and um that 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 was it because he didn't he didn't want to dwell on it because in his mind he was never going to change the mind of people who, who didn't want to believe that he had been cleared of everything. And he had, he was lumped into the Terry Garvin, Mel Phillip pot. And after that, uh, that announcer guy jumped in, tried to uh, get a payday. And after the smoke cleared and Pat was cleared of any charges and that there was never any criminal uh, investigation of any kind. And nobody ever came out after that saying uh, that Pat did anything wrong. Uh but, you know, it's still out there uh, somehow, and people keep repeating it uh, without real knowledge of the situation. So, I mean, I, I'm never going to shy away from it. I mean, the man I know knew uh, was a great person, and he was amazing. And I, you know, before meeting him, I mean, you you ask yourself those questions. I mean, that's why that's one of the subjects I wanted to talk about, because I had gravitated in the indie world of the province of Quebec. And, and, you know, the number of wrestlers who told the story that, well, I didn't get a job because I didn't play on Pat Patterson's team. Well, I got a job and I didn't play on his team either. Uh, So I think, you know, it was used by a lot of people as a crutches. Uh, While well, Pat is gay, I'm not gay, so that's why I'm not getting work, or that's not that's why WWE doesn't want me. Uh, I, I think he was those stories ended up uh, giving him a really bad reputation that that was not deserved at all. And I'm so happy in the last few years, especially with the guys like Edge. And, uh, Christian and, uh, Landstorm and Chris Jericho and, uh, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, who had all positive things to say, uh, to John Cena, uh, of working with him, uh, to Dwayne Johnson, which sometimes we forget that without Pat, there's no Dwayne Johnson. You know, they all were so positive. So, I mean, they, 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 they reverse a little bit of the damage. Uh, but you know, uh, it, it, it's still there. And I just hope that, you know, shows like today and, and people actually going out and, and reading what's in the book, uh, and, and, you know, doing a little bit of studying of the situation, uh, will realize that, you know, Pat got a bad, a bad deal on this. Uh, and he just took it because he was uh, loyal to the company and loyal to Vince, uh, because that's what he had promised his dad.
0: But, well, like you said, there's a big difference between someone being raunchy and saying raunchy things out loud in a bar or with friends and someone saying, if you don't sleep with me, you don't have a job. Two completely different things, and of course, the latter was never shown to be the case. I have to ask you, though, on this topic, Bertrand, you know, Pat Patterson knew Billy Graham since San Francisco. They were partners. Did he ever forgive Billy Graham? Could he ever have forgiven Billy Graham for really being out there and being one of the most vocal people accusing Pat Patterson and then later on admitting that it wasn't true?
1: Um, Pat would not want me to say anything good or bad about Billy Graham. It just doesn't exist for Pat.
0: I guess that answers the question right there. Of course, a few years later, something else would happen that was pretty tragic for Pat, and that was the loss of Louie. What was that period of time like for him?
1: it was hard uh i mean he was the love of his life i mean that may sound cliche but that's that's just what it is and you know wwe being what it is i mean it was like well you should go back to work don't stay alone you know that'll get your mind off but it, it, it took a long long time for him to get over it because his pattern was like go to the show do the show go to the bar have a drink with the boys go back to the room call louis and the first few times he was back on the road afterwards He would go back to the room and he would pick up the phone and then realize that there was nobody to call. So that was hard for a long, long time for him. Um, And, you know, he he loved the story when Mick Foley came to him and asked him because Louis actually died the day of the L in the cell at King of the Ring where uh, Mick Foley was thrown off the cage. And and years later, Mick asked him if... uh, you know, Louis had died, uh, because he, he saw Meg being thrown out of the cage. So that made Pat laugh because actually Louis passed away in the afternoon. And, you know, that, that was, uh, a, a way for him to, 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 uh, see the, see it in a different light and see it with more, um, uh, you know, not laughter. It's not the word I'm looking for more of a, you know, to, to accept the fact that, uh, you know, that this was the past and that he had to move forward. Um, And he was talking about Louis, you know, up until the last time uh, I spoke to him. And, you know, there was that, there's a picture of it in the book. Uh, I wish I had took a better picture of it, actually, because I don't like that picture. I just took it like that and it it ended up in the book. Because when I told the story of that, he had that one frame of uh, Louis, in his uh in his home that one picture uh the publisher they they wanted that picture in the book but i didn't like the picture <laughs> uh but it's in there uh and, and it it meant the world to him that little tiny picture in the golf frame with golf clubs because they love to play golf um so he was uh you know 40 years with someone that's to me amazing and, and you know he went on over 20 years without him uh, and he never stopped loving him and never stopped t- thinking about him. And uh, I mean, in all of this in the past, you the, the past two days. I mean, uh, thinking that they may, they may just be together again. Uh, that made me smile.
0: Bertram, before we wrap things up today, I have to ask you about something that a lot of younger fans may best remember Pat Patterson for, which is his Renaissance, as it were, on TV as an on-air performer, one of the Stooges for Vince McMahon when Vince McMahon became a heel character on TV. Did Pat enjoy that? Did Pat enjoy working with Gerald Briscoe and being an on-air character as one of the Stooges?
1: More or less would be the be- the best answer. I mean, we we went through it a little bit in the book. It's like I was a main event guy. Now I was a comedy guy. <laughs> So, you know, he wished he was, he was going to, if he was going to work with Stone Cold, he wanted to work the main event and then for the championship for the best money on the card. You know, he didn't want necessarily to work the Mean Street posse, which was one thing he was scared about is that he could still go, obviously. I mean, he was amazing, but, you know, he didn't want to get hurt at this point, you know, so he was a little bit uh, careful. So, I mean, Briscoe, Jerry had a lot more fun than, than he did. You know, and I think with, with the years, it, it kind of became their thing. Like Briscoe would be the one who loved it and he would be the one who would be saying, so it kind of became their stick a little bit, I think. And Pat kind of liked the concept of uh, putting all the heat on, on, on Jerry, uh, for this. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's beautiful because when you look at it, it's, it's amazing. He said, well, this guy's been retired for over 10 years and he's coming in and he's better than a lot of the guys. Uh, But, you know, at the same time for Pat, it was, you know, that's not what he wanted to be remembered for, basically. But, you know, he, he still did the 24-7 thing recently, you know. Even though, you know, he didn't do anything physically, he still did it, you know, because that was performing. Yeah. That was, you know, what he loved to do. So he may go uh, backward and, and grumpy and grudgingly, but, you know, he still... Like to perform. So, you know, he, he, he kind of liked it, I guess. But, you know, he was never going to sell the fact that he kind of liked it.
0: <laughs> well, Bertrand, this has been tremendous. And I really appreciate you spending some time with us today to talk about your friend, Pat Patterson. And as we begin to wrap things up, what do you see as Pat's biggest legacy that he leaves behind on the world of professional wrestling?
1: Well, I, I you know, the Royal Rumble, you know, has to. Be at the top i i guess i mean there's no other way around i mean that's going to be around as long as there's going to be a wwe uh in the book we, we talk about it he had that idea that he wanted them to create the patterson cup like the stanley cup for the rumble where you know they could drink champagne in the end with in it and they would have the big ring with all the names on it and they could sell replica and he, people would take pictures with the trophy at wrestlemania week and yeah that whole idea so i hope they do maybe not that but they do something that will make Pat part of the rumble every year somehow and and you know then i mean the legacy is how many people he put in the spotlight uh as a producer and, and uh, behind the scene power player uh i mean from Bret Hart to uh even you know he was a big supporter of Roman Reigns uh to you know John Cena to uh Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Dwayne Johnson, uh, Daniel Bryan, uh, Rey Mysterio, uh, you know, those, those guys, you know, all, all owe something to Pat. And even a story I didn't know, I mean, Sami Zayn came out that, you know, how much Pat was a big supporter of him uh, in in NXT, in, in uh, getting him the big push uh, that, that made him at the time. So Pat was like that. When he liked you, he really did. And he would get behind. And... and that was sad in the last few years because the last time I saw him, his new favorite wrestler was Chad Gable and he, he had those ideas and he'd be amazing and he should do the Yvonne Robert hold and I, I could teach him and that'd be perfect for his character. And he had all those ideas, but he didn't have the the will to go and fight for those ideas anymore. And, you know, he just let it go. And, you know, Personally, I felt even sadder because I I think there was really something in, in Chad Gable to see, you know, the way the, the what they did was the opposite of what Pat had in mind for Chad Gable. So that's the legacy, I think, you know, what he would bring to the show and and the way of thinking that Pat had. No one had that. No one. And uh, that that will be missed. He's the last one of those giants, those uh, Roy Shire, Eddie Graham. You know, Pat was the last one, and now he's gone, and there's no one of that stature left.
0: I want to remind everyone you can pick up a copy of the book that Bertrand wrote with Pat Patterson, Accepted How the First Gay Superstar Changed WWE, out on ECW Press, available wherever you get your favorite books. But until next time, the 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Big thanks to Lou Kippelman and Jace Nacarado for their help in putting this episode together. But for Bertrandy Bear, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! We are now going to feature some classic audio from National All-Star Wrestling, a.k.a. Wrestling in San Francisco, promoted by Roy Shire. These are clips that originally aired on KTVU Channel 2 out of Oakland, California. These clips are originally from the collection of Les Puskus and I want to give a big special thanks to his son, Clay Puskus for supplying them to the Super Podcast here today. Now, a reminder, these are old clips. These are classic clips from the 60s. The audio is clearly not perfect, but due to the historical nature of these audio clips, we thought it was important to play them today to give you a small example of what it was like when Pat Patterson wrestled in San Francisco with Ray Stevens and eventually against Ray Stevens. This first series of clips is from 1966, and this first clip is regarding the April 16th 1966 match at the Cow Palace, a tag team title match against Bobo Brazil and Bearcat Wright.
7: do you pencil necks do from any direction. If you're looking at me, I look better than any of you pencil necks do around here. Well, I got news for you. I think after Saturday, April the 16th, you'll look even better, because I think Bobo was ill, and Bearcat White will rearrange your looks a little bit. Why don't you tell these people to be quiet when we're talking, and why don't you just stand your and talk like a gentleman, and, put and make making your auditory remarks about us? Because when we get in there, Bearcat Light and over Brazil. Now there's two real names, two good names, Bearcat Light and Bobo Brazil. And who they got to match against? The World Tag Team Champions, Pat Patterson and myself. Now you can't honestly stand there and think that these two men have the class and the intelligence. Russell, two great wrestlers like that and myself. In matter of fact, I think they have. And I think Bobo Brazil, if he ever gives you the cocoa bump, he'll split you wide open. If, if he gets in the ring for this, if he doesn't chicken out before the match, he'll be doing a great thing. If he even gets in the ring, that's a big word. If he'll be there, he'll be there, and he'll be ready for you. Like I said, you can't really think that these guys in a class with Patterson and myself, sure, Bobo Brazil has got a hard head, but he should have a hard head, because he hasn't got anything between this ear and this ear except a lot of bone, so when you get a lot of bone up there, naturally, you got to have a hard head, don't you, but well, what have you got up there,
2: listen, i got
7: brains, sure, my head's not as hard as this, but I don't expect to be. because my head's full of brains, and Pat and I are great thinkers not only great wrestlers, but great thinkers when we're in the ring. That's why we're the World Tag Team Champions. Bova yeah. Brazil and uh, uh, Bearcat Wright are not the champions, and one of these other guys are not the champions. Do you think you can handle Bova Brazil? Do you think you can beat Bearcat Wright? Listen, you know, you should ask me a question like that. Everybody knows I can beat be Bearcat Wright. He's nothing but a tall, wet noodle. He's a big, tall guy. He's a but he's got a head about that big no brain just like football Brazil when, uh, when did you ever beat Bearcat Right. well listen that's beside the point I'm just talking about the match coming up next Saturday night well listen to me we got something stuck in our tights and we got something stuck in our brains. what are we gonna do to these two guys listen that's what he said. they don't have any brains at all and I'll bet you anything we'll wrestle with these guys for one hour they couldn't beat us at all. How can they beat us with an all-time limit? You didn't beat them in one hour either, let me remind you. Exactly the reason why we didn't beat them. Pat and I are in such great shape that that hour went by so fast that we didn't even realize. We thought it only maybe 10 or 15 minutes that went by in the match. I don't know, maybe the timekeeper went crazy or something. But we were in such great shape that we didn't even realize that the hour went by. And we were just getting ready to polish them off when that bell rang. That's exactly why they lasted an hour with us. You see, number one, we have a great psychological advantage over these two guys because we're the champions and they know that we're mean and we're tough and we'll break the leg, the arm or the finger anything we can get when we get a hold of them. So therefore, they're scared. They're scared, number one, because we're the champions. When they walk in that ring, you can see the sweat rolling off of them and their knees are shaking like the leaves on a tree in a windstorm when they come in there. So they're scared. That's why we have a... You're whistling by the graveyard, you will be until next Saturday night. Then we'll see just what happens in that ring. Let's face it, Ray and I were the World Tag Team Champion, and we're long there. Let's face it, just like this. Would you see Ray, right, and Bobo Brazil World Tag Team Champions? Ray. Right. What kind of class would they show to the wrestling? To anything, they can't even talk. They don't know how to dress properly. Or anything. You've got to have class you got to just naturally have class to be a champion in anything. they got it. They, they'll stand up here. They'll face the camera. They won't turn their back to it. They're not ashamed of the way they act just because they're scared to turn away. I don't know anybody out there nothing. I'll turn my back on anybody I want to, including you. And I'm tired of your derogatory remarks here tonight. I bet you have enough of my valuable time and enough of your and his valuable time. We're not talking anymore to you. Come on, boy.
0: The world tag team champions Patterson and Stevens would end up winning that match when Bobo Brazil was injured in the third fall and could not continue in the match. This next clip is regarding a six man tag match with Patterson and Stevens with Cyclone Negro against Louis Hernandez, Louis Martinez, and Jim Haiti. This next clip you're about to hear is in reference to the June 25th, 1966 match at the Cow Palace, Patterson and Stevens versus Cyclone Negro and Kenji Shibuya. Now, this match would end up being ruled a draw when referee Tom Rice halted the match because Shibuya and Patterson were bleeding too badly in the third fall. And as you'll hear in this clip, it sets up a rematch for July 16th, 1966 with no stopping of the match due to blood.
7: might say it just didn't work because they didn't wrestle the way that we figured they would. We underestimated them. They—they they wasn't only real rough wrestling, but uh, they were thinking real good in there at the same time. I mean, you—you were, you were not as rough this time as you usually wrestle. I thought it was a pretty rough bout from where I said. Well, it was rough, but we didn't wrestle as rough as we uh, usually do because we didn't. Fit i start to realize that i was bleeding a lot and i saw ray in there getting shibuya revenge well i wanted to come in that ring and continue until i couldn't walk until i couldn't move i wanted to keep wrestling i wanted to beat these guys so much but the stupid referee stopped his step in between and stopped the match well i just hope one thing that the next match I don't know who's going to referee the match but I hope we don't have a referee with a weak stomach because there's going to be blood flying all over the place I don't care if it's my blood and I'm sure Ray doesn't care if it's his blood but there's going to be blood in that match believe me sir there's going to be a lot of blood and Ray and I is going to come out winner well I tell you uh, Shibuya told me last week that if you hadn't jumped it from behind you wouldn't be able to split his head open on the post and I thought you uh, did not jump it you? I mean, the first album that we
0: The next audio segment you're about to hear are Patterson and Stevens talking about a Cow Palace match versus Murder, Inc., the feud with Cyclone Negro and Kenji Shibuya, as well as an attack by Negro and Shibuya. Let's go to this.
7: Negro, and Shibuya was watching because we just wanted to show them that we can wrestle scientific as well as we can wrestle rough, too. You know, uh, you need actually all kinds of wrestling in order to beat a team like Shibuya Negro, but in the last bout you had with him, which was stopped in account of Levin Patterson, and his head split open, uh, I was quite surprised that it was a draw because you had actually asked for that bout, being sure that you could beat that team. Well, it's uh, like I told you before, we actually underestimated that team, which was very bad on our part. We usually never make a mistake like that. But we just underestimated them, and it ended up it was a draw. So uh, it was our fault. But this next match coming up, where no matter who gets cut or how bad anybody's bleeding or anything else, they're not going to stop it. This is our kind of wrestling. This is the kind of wrestling we really and truly enjoy, because it's not going to be just like a wrestling match, it's going to be more like a back alley brawl, like in uh, some dark street someplace, and this is what we like. Well, we know how rough and tough you and Patterson are, but this uh, Negro and Shibuya, I mean, they're really, uh, uh, they're a couple of animals, actually, in that ring, and uh, you talk about that kind of wrestling, and that's up there, alley, actually. Listen, we're going to kick their teeth out before they even get started, when they get in that ring. We're going to run down to the ring as fast as we can and try to beat them down into the ring so that when they stick their ugly faces to these ropes that the cow palace, they're going to get our shoes right between their lips because we're going to try to kick their teeth out as soon as the bell rings. Well, you better be first because they're probably listening to this and when they heard you say that, they're going to say they'll be first into the ring. Well, I hope they're listening to it. It doesn't really make any difference if we don't beat them. We're not first in the ring. We'll be the last to come out of the ring, I'll guarantee you that, because they'll be carrying these two birds up when we get through with them. Tomorrow night you're going to see a wolf. I'm going to be a wolf tomorrow night. I'm going to be after that Shibuya, because he cut my head open. I cut his head open also, but tomorrow I'm going to break all the bones.
0: next clip, our final clip from 1966, is referencing a Cow Palace match on August 13th, 1966. Patterson and Stevens, along with Haystacks Calhoun, versus Cyclone Negro, Kenji Shibuya, and Gorilla Monsoon.
7: else but first I want to tell you why that we went through all this trouble and done all the traveling to get the person that we got to be our team partner. First of all, this Shibuya Negro they're out to cripple Patterson and I this is first of all this is why they got monsoon and this big mouth uh, red berry. They figured if they got this big guy that they would cripple us. Although this is not a title match they'd cripple us and they'd get us completely out of the wrestling business and then our title would and they just to step in and take over, and that to be simple for them. Now, this is what they had in the back of their mind. That way you uh, spent money to go 6,000 miles just to sign a wrestler as a third man. That's exactly right. Uh, when I get in there with those three guys, and knowing that these two guys are going to be trying to cripple us to start with, I wanted to get me a real good insurance policy, so therefore i And I didn't only get the biggest wrestler there is, but I think I got one of the toughest wrestlers in the wrestling business, and he's bigger than Monsoon. We've got Haystack Calhoun to be our partner. That's the one, that's the one, and I just can't wait. August the 13th, i the a cowboy get the win that date because I just can't wait to get in that ring to surprise Shibuya and Negro. Believe me and even that monsoon would be running away from ASAC Calhoun. No. How many times I heard this big pop right Red say that he's got the biggest and the toughest wrestler in the wrestling business who goes around crippling people. Well do you know how much that ASAC Calhoun weighs? I know how much. He weighs 601 pounds and I think that's a couple pounds heavier and Haystack, Calhoun, and that to you. Well, I'll tell you, him and I have got something to settle with this Shibuya and Negro, and we've got Calhoun in there to take care of Monsoon. Anytime a Monsoon comes to raid, we're just going to leave him completely, completely to uh, Haystack, and we're going to be after Shibuya and to wild red Berry, someone bigger than his man. Well it'll probably be a surprise to him. I don't know what he'll think and I don't care. But you know they think he thinks that he's so smart and he's got so many tricks he's gonna use. But he's gonna learn if he messes around with Stevenson Patterson, he's gonna think that he was wrestling Houdini when he was in there. There's you know, one thing we're going to be looking for. I just hope, and I know that it will happen because we'll do our best to have Haystack give a big splash to that big baboon Monsoon. And believe me, Monsoon's going to look like a midget compared to Haystack. You know, just one big grease spot there with Haystack. Well, I, I told you they had some partner, and you got to believe it. What a partner in that wild six-man. Come right down around
0: their ears. our next series of clips are from 1969 where things have drastically changed for the blonde bombers this first clip aired on july 5th 1969 it is pat patterson talking about his july 12th 1969 match at the cow palace against ray stevens let's go to this
7: next Saturday July 12th is the big one at the cow Palace in San Francisco well let's let's check your math now I suppose it's There's all right nothing in my mask I didn't I just beat that guy fair and square he was no man for me that's how I beat him so easy well, why did you run right out of here when the bow was over then listen I didn't run out of here I went out there forget my pictures right here I don't have nothing to hide and the reason why I wear this mask is because I'm a nice looking guy and I would not want to be like the other guys like Lee Steven or Big Bill Miller and all these guys become ugly and have my face all busted out the reason why I wear this mask is to protect my face and beside that this mask is a good luck charm to me you're so happy you can't afford well, I still say you brought that towel out here deliberately to get farmers' attention tonight. You had that object in your trucks tonight. Listen, I don't have nothing in my trunks. Would you like to see what I've got in my trunks? I bet I can show that on television. But I'll tell you one thing. I got something to show you right here. That's one thing that I, keeps reminding me that what Ray Steven did to me. Now... Come on, cameraman. We don't want to look at your pictures. am I, come here, stupid. Take a close up of this here. Oh, there's me, Pat Patterson, right here. Three months sitting down with a broken leg. Here is another picture. And here is another picture. And here is another picture. I have these pictures all over my house. I have one in the closet, I have one in the bathroom, I have one in the bedroom, I have one in my car, I have one in my suitcase, because for a simple reason, I cannot forget for what Grace Steven did to me, and believe you me, I'm not proud to show these pictures on television, but I want you stupid people to see it, because I want you to see one thing, this face you see right here is me. But after July the 12th, you're going to see the same picture, but it's going to be Ray Stevens' face over there. I'll guarantee you one thing. That's one thing I'm going to do. I don't care about the title. I don't care about the title. All I want to do is cripple Ray Stevens, and believe you me, I'm going to do it. Well, there'll be thousands of people out there that'll think you can't do the job, and think that Stevens can beat you like he's beaten all the other challengers. Let me tell you something, Ray Steven won the match last time against Big Bill Miller. He didn't beat Big Bill Miller, Rocky Marciano hit Big Bill Miller and Big Big Miller went right down on the cement floor. Now what kind of a champion is he? All you people, you think that Ray Steven is such a nice guy. Well let me tell you something, Ray Steven when he goes to New York or when he goes to wrestle in Chicago, he tried the same bit as he tried over here before. He went to Chicago and he says, well, now that I came back from Japan, I want to be a nice guy. But those people in Chicago and those people in New York, they're smart people. They still boo-ray Stephen. They know he's a big phony. But over here everybody cheers Ray Stevens. You know why? Because the people around here in the Bay Area are a bunch of idiots. That's the kind of people that I have a lot here. They don't know a good restaurant from a bad one. You people are too stupid to realize what kind of guy Ray Stevens is. Well I know what kind of guy he is because I was with him for three years and one thing, Ray Stevens knows. He knows that there is one man that can beat him. I can do it, and I'll guarantee you one thing, my friend, that as soon as that bell rings July the 12th, that's one day that I can't wait to come. As soon as that bell rings, I'm gonna knock Ray Steven flat on his back. And all of you out there, you love Ray Steven, don't you? You love him, you want part of him, don't you? Well after I knock him out on his back, I'll grab his leg and I'll twist him and I'll rip it apart and I'll throw the legs and the arm back to you! You can have part of Ray Stevens. Because after this, I'm going to be the new champion and Ray Steven's going to be the hospital with a broken leg and with a broken arm and with a broken neck. You'll do all this without your mask, I imagine. I'll wear my mask. I'll wear my mask from the dressing room to the ring. And like I said, I'll do worse to Ray Steven than what I've been doing to all these guys around here. That's all I got to say to you. And all I want to do is of the drive 12. Because I'm going to cripple the man that I always want to do. It. Well, he's got to leave. Take your pictures. We don't want your pictures. Take these too. We you don't want them. Smart with me because I just might break one of your legs. You haven't because got your I mask can, on you know, now. Right now, I stand right here. And when I think of Ray Stevens, and when I look at those pictures, my leg hurts right now when I think of it. And if you get smart with me, I just might break one of your legs right now. You put on your mask first, won't you? I will,
0: Coming out of that match that they had at the Cow Palace on July 12th, a match where Ray Stevens defeated Pat Patterson two out of three falls via disqualification in the third fall. We have this interview airing on July 19th, 1969. The interview conducted by the legendary Dick Lane. Let's go to this.
7: me because he's scared, because he knows I beat him right in the middle of that ring. Let me tell you something, Mr. Blabbermouth, you didn't beat Ray Stevens and you never lived long enough to meet the day you can beat Ray Stevens. Listen, there was 14,000 people right here to count on us. I've been telling you all you idiots out there how much I know Ray Steven. I know all his tricks. Well, I must admit one thing. I knew that Ray Steven was going to pull the mask out of my head because that's the kind of trick he likes to do. I know him very well. So I told Tom Andrew, I said, Tom, you stay and watch the match in case he does pull the mask out of my head. Because without that good luck strong here, I cannot win. Listen to me. And he did pull that mask out of my head. That's why Tom Andrew came next to the ring and give me an extra mask. And what did I do? I beat Ray Stephen right in the middle of the ring. The referee counted one, two, and three. He rings me. for the medal disc, The referee has it. turned it in and you were disqualified and Mr. Ray Stevens is still the United States heavyweight wrestling champion and will continue to be. Mr. You make me sick because you don't you know don't anything. Any I know Ray Stevens and I know what he did. He had Peter Maiva come next to that ring. Yes, sir. I know all his tricks. He had Peter Maiva come in that ring when he knew he was beat. Maiva jumped in the ring and Tom Andrew pulled me up to the match that Peter Maiva came in the ring and he already had something in his hand and he attacked me from the back he already had something I didn't have nothing in my ring I did not listen and he attacked me from the back he wouldn't have the guts to ask me to attack me by the front but he attacked me in the back and he made believe that he pulled something out of my mask. He did. And he went to show it to the referee. He gave it to the referee. And well, let me tell you, I don't blame the referee for reversing the decision. But, listen, Peter Maiva came in the ring with a piece of steel in his hand. He did not. And he made me leave put it out of my mask. I didn't have nothing in my mask. I didn't have nothing in my tank. I beat Ray Steven right in the middle of the ring. I didn't need nobody. A deal. I didn't need nothing. I just beat him fair and square. I should be the number one challenger. You know where you are now? You're down in number 20, something. Say pass. that because I'm gonna tell you right here. You're not gonna, gonna listen, you couldn't, you couldn't miss miss. Your lips. If I get a hold of that race, Stephen, I don't care where on a bus, on a plane in the alley. saw me come in, he ran like a scared bird up and the stairs and he went and hid. And every time he saw me around the corner, I looked at him and he'd run all over the place. Because you know why? He knows I am mad and he knows I want to kill him and he is afraid. You just like my words. Because one day, I don't know when, but one day you will see and you will hear that. Crippled up and beat up Ray Steven somewhere and, uh, well, listen, right in the alley. And believe you it. me, I'm going to do it. He'll be right I'm here into the building. He'll be yes. in his brain in a few minutes. Yes. You won't have to hunt anywhere for him. Listen, It'd be right in the I'm train. talking about him right now. Go if ahead. he was such a man, why does not he come out to my face? He's afraid that's why. Okay. knows I'm not afraid of nobody, and all of you out there, you don't know, care me of it, I'm not afraid of nobody, but I know one man that's afraid of me, and that's straight Stevens. and believe you me, I'll get a hold of him one of these days, you will just mark my way, that's- The challenger, the principal challenger for the United States heavyweight championship is Chris Markov. You'll see him on the 9th of August at the Cow Palace. But, yeah, Mr. Pat
2: Patterson.
0: This next interview, also with Dick Lane, aired on July 26, 1969, right after Pat Patterson defeated Bobby Shane. It is regarding the August 9th, 1969 Cow Palace match against Ray Stevens, now famously. Ray Stevens would end up getting injured out of the ring and would be replaced on this show by Pedro Morales, but here is Pat Patterson talking about Ray Stevens.
7: Let me tell you something. I'm going to get you told once. You are probably the foulest, most obviously crooked man I've ever seen in England. You should never be, be arrested for being against a character like you, I can tell you that. It takes a man to be like me, and that's why, On oh, this tonight, I'm going to be the United States champion. That's exactly why. You keep saying that, and you've made believe it someday, but you have to prove it. Now, you've got yourself a fine, and you've got a suspension, and you owe a vote of thanks race team for getting your suspension, but to a point where you can get back in the ring. You're going to lose $1,500. You know that, don't you? Listen, I must say one thing. I must thank Ray Steven, all right? Yeah. And just to prove you how stupid he is, I was supposed to be suspended ninety days and fined $500. Well, Ray Steven didn't want me to be suspended, so they fined me $1,500 yeah.
0: Our next interview aired on August 2nd, 1969, once again talking about the big match on August 9th, 1969 against Ray Stevens at the Cow Palace. Saturday
7: night, August the 9th at the Cow Palace, the United States Heavyweight Championship at stake. Ray Stevens defending against this man, Pat Patterson. I should be the United States champion because the last time in the Cow Palace... Listen, I don't use nothing in my life or in my, my mask. You know that And all of you, you all know that I'm
3: going you later using something
7: in your mask. Listen, don't worry about the mask. What I worry about right now is this. I signed the contract to wrestle Ray Stevens, and on the contract, there was nothing about any fuck. I'll reach you and come <laughs> supposed to use anything, but Sam Musnick told me, he says, use using a mask, Ray Stephen can use anything he wants, well, I don't think it's fair, well, you know, Sam Musnick is a man that doesn't say his mind, but, like I said, I am smaller than Ray Stephen, so I went to the board of directors, and we had a big meeting. They might stop Ray Stevens from using what's in that box. Okay. They might. I know the board, and they do not overrule the president. When he makes a decision, they stand behind him. They say, when he says Stevens can use what's in that box, he can use it. Why are you afraid of it? I thought you were out of of I'm not going to rush on Ray Stevens if he use what's in that box. Now, listen, he might have a hammer in there. Or he might have a blackjack. Or he might have a brass duck. I don't know. You know any man... Use any foreign up in that ring. Nobody's allowed to use you. You'll leave your mask off when you wrestle there. The mask is just like a parasite, and besides that, this mask is bringing me a lot of luck. Well, I'll tell you one thing if Free Steel is gonna use what's in that box, I'm not gonna wrestle him because I don't think it's fair. box. Listen, I know I'm worried about it, and I would like to find out what he's got in that box. But I'll make sure, because one thing I'm going to do is as soon as, as, as Ray Stevens gets in that ring, I'm going to make sure that he doesn't have enough time to use what he's going to have in that box.
0: This next clip is from August 9th, 1969, the day of the Cow Palace show, and word is now coming out that Ray Stevens is injured, and here's Pat Patterson's reaction to that news. Get on see him, Pat Barrett
7: like to wrestle me and, the cow farmers, and he has to be there! Well, the doctors will decide that tonight when they examine it to see how the cuts are. Listen, I don't care what a doctor has to say. I know what Ray Steven's trying to do. He's trying to run away from me because he is yellow and he's scared. Now, so I saw Ray Stevens. all he's got is a few stitches on his head, and he's trying to run away from me in my head and I went on in that ring. I wasn't afraid. I know he's yellow and he's trying to get away from that mask. That's what he's trying to get. I'm a bit afraid of you because he's got that box and he's got something in it that will equalize whatever you put in your mask. So he's not the least bit afraid of you tonight. Listen, I was afraid of what he had in that box a few weeks ago but I'm not afraid anymore because what he had in that box Don't scare me if it was that great you'd take it back away from me. Ray Steven is not hurt more than anybody, but he's just yellow and he's trying to get away from me in that match. But I'm going to tell you something and all of you something that you don't know and that the promoter doesn't know. I talked to Sam Mushnick and if Ray Steven does not wrestle tomorrow night, he is going to lose the title. We're judge. You know he'll be there tonight. Listen, I've been with Ray Steven for a long time, and I realized one thing right now, that Ray Steven and I have one thing in common. What's that? Well, listen, if Ray Steven, if I was Ray Steven, I wouldn't want to wrestle Pat Patterson either. I wouldn't want to wrestle myself because Pat Patterson is the toughest and the meanest wrestler that you have ever seen.
0: Our next clip is from August 16th, 1969. It is the first interview Pat Patterson has done since winning the U.S. title via forfeit at the Cow Palace, talking about his big defense on September 13th against Bobo Brazil.
7: You. Listen, I'm just lucky. Enough. crippled them real bad but as you know i am not a champion and i represent everybody in the united states so i have to be a nice guy so all i had to do when the referee was counting to 10 i got up just on time to win the match that's all i had to do you barely got up rallies had you beat but enough no, about no, that i didn't barely get up i knew what the referee was doing but like i said I was trying to be a nice guy because I'm not a champion. And I didn't have to beat Morales. All I had to do was get up. Look, you were lucky you got the title from Stevens. You're lucky you beat Morales. And now you're acting like you don't need your good luck charm. I think you better keep that handy. Without that, you would never had a chance at the title. Listen, you were holding it. It was close to the ring. That's all I needed. And as far as Ray Stevens is concerned, listen... I just can't wait for the day to meet Ray Stephen because I am not afraid of him and I know that Ray Stephen can't beat me. I just know. I think- so anytime Mr. Stephen is ready, I'll be right in that ring and I'll put up my title anytime just to show him that I'm not afraid I, of him. I don't think you better worry about Stevens right now, we don't know when he'll be back wrestling, but we do know this, you could have the shortest reign in the history of wrestling with that title, because on September 13th, you're going to be the number one challenger for your championship, and that man is not going to worry about your mask, because that man is Bobo Brazil with a big cocoa butt of his own. You better worry about Bobo. Let me tell you something. I have a hard head, and like I said, I've never I'm not a cheater, and I've never used a foreign object. I just have a hard head, and the reason why I wear this mask is to protect my face, and it's a good luck charm. As far as Bobo Brazil is concerned, he's got a hard head all right, but he's got nothing in it, and that's why I know, and I'm not afraid, because I know I have a lot more brain than he has. Because he's nothing but a big Gideon. that's all he is. Well, you'll find out on the 13th. That's all the time we got for you, even well, though you see, are a That's all the time we have. I'm not complaining yet. I'm not afraid of Bubba Brazil. You didn't see me complain, did you? No, you didn't complain. Well, that's because I'm not afraid of him. Like I said, Bobo Brazil, he might be twice as big as I am, but he doesn't scare me. The muscle doesn't scare Patterson that's what counts the brain and that's what i have well, you got a lot of brains. i certainly do and i'd like to say one thing i'm gonna be a real good champion and i'm gonna be a better champion than reese steven ever been a champion as you know reese steven held the title about five or six times and in all that period of time put together we don't we've had enough for you I you keep your nothing. brains warm you're going let to let me you. do the talking i've I done enough dog.
0: From September 13th, 1969, after the match with Bobo Brazil, here is the post-match interview, as well as a confrontation with Bobo.
7: and you know and everybody out here knows that i don't have to use any foreign object in my mask to beat anybody and i'd like to prove it to you and to prove it to everybody out here and in here that i don't use nothing in my mask and i'll show you right now right here there is absolutely nothing in my mask and you can look in here i don't have nothing in my mask and i just prove it to you so don't call me a liar and all of you out there don't call me a liar anymore because i am a perfect champion and i don't need any foreign object to beat anybody why did you let the referee check your mask instead of scooting out of here coming back showing it to us now means absolutely nothing the referee doesn't have anything to do the referee raised my hand i won the mask Come on. There you are. put your mask on. Put this we got in it and see what happens. Listen, get this guy out of here and I just told you I don't use anything in my mask. Get on. And I'm a perfect gentleman. Now, I didn't come into the head of you. That's my head of you. It just goes to show you you're nothing but a dropout. You're nothing but a big idiot. You might have a hard head, but you don't have nothing in it. And furthermore, I should have have to get near you. But because I'm the champion, that's the thing I have to face. I don't even want to touch you. You can't lay a hand on him here, Bobo. I know you'd like to, but you
3: can't lay a hand.
0: And finally, here is Pat Patterson talking about the October 11th, 1969 match, a rematch with Bobo Brazil, this time, no disqualification. back at
7: ringside. We're going to talk to the United States Heavyweight Champion here for a moment, Pat Patterson. Now listen, that's ridiculous. I am the United States champion, and all these people out here are out here to boo me. Now that's not right. It just goes to show you how stupid they are. Maybe you should act like a champion, and they might cheer you. But I don't. You don't know how to act like a champion. And it's interesting to note that you finally got caught with that thing you put in your mask. Uh, just a minute. First of all, I think it's ridiculous to have a return match with Bobo Brazil. Now, I beat Bobo Brazil. And I shouldn't have to wrestle him again! Well, you didn't beat him, you were disqualified. He won the match, you just couldn't win the title on a disqualification. I'm still the champion, am I? So I beat Bobo Brazil. And I'll tell you one thing. I talked to Sam Mushnick over the phone, and I told him how stupid it was to have me in a return match with Bobo Brazil with no disqualification! That's ridiculous! You, can you imagine what this guy could do against me? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Now, he came here and he said that I put something in my mask. Now, you know and all of you out there know that I don't put nothing in my mask. That last match at the Cow Palace, Bobo Brazil took it out of your mask and the referee saw it and that's why you were disqualified. Bobo had it right in his hand to show to the referee. Listen, four eyes, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you and all of you out there how wrong you are. Because you see, people like you and all of you out there, you all think that I put something in my mask, but I don't. You see what happened? Bobo Brazil, he made the big mistake just to show you how stupid he is, and so is the referee. Now. Bobo Brazil headbutted me two times. And then they realized that he could not knock me out. Why? Because my heart, my head is just as hard as his head. And he realized that he could not headbutt me. Then he got panicky. He got nervous. The referee really did not see that, but I did. And all of you out there, you saw it too. Bobo Brazil reached in his tights, And he beat me with it. Then he put his hand into my mask and made believe that he pulled that thing out of my mask. You see? You mean he carried it in the ring because he needed it? That's right! He had that thing in his tights! And now, we're supposed to believe that story? That's the true story! And you see, when the referee saw that Bobo had a foreign object in his hand, the referee yanked it out of his hand and disqualify me! So that cost him the title! why because they're so stupid that's why and so is the referee i noticed he beat you and pinned you after it was over there well listen you call that fair and square when the referee rang the bell to disqualify me i was trying to tell the referee that the deputy a foreign object did not come out of my mask that it came out of bobo brazil's hand but while i was talking to the referee Bobo Brazil attacked me from the back and then beat me. Now, you call that a man? No, I don't, but I am a man. And this time, there is no disqualification. Look, I've heard your story, and then I'll tell you the truth. You carried that into the ring for two reasons. You wanted insurance. You needed it to beat Bull Rovers, If not, you needed to do, get disqualified so you could keep your title. That's the reason you had it. That's what you think, but you know that's not the truth. And you all know. But this time, listen, this is no disqualification. Everything goes. And I know one thing, and you know that I can be Bobo Brazil. Because in a no disqualification match, everything goes. I can grab a chair, I can pray, I can grab anything. You and sure furthermore, my sister can be this sister. My dog can be this dog. And my car can be this car. And I can be Bobo Brazil anytime. And furthermore, I'm not gonna even worry. I'm so mad I can't even talk. I'm not going to wear my mask that night. Oh, good luck, John. You're not going to take him to the ring? No, I don't need the mask to wear Bobo And I'll be him anytime, anytime place. And when I know this he's the one that's going to take the place. You keep looking over your shoulder like you're afraid he's here.
0: Once again... Big thanks to Clay Puskus, and we are very grateful to be able to share Les Puskus' audio with you here today. Also, once again, big thanks to Jay Nacarado and Lou Kippelman for all their help in putting this episode together. We'll see you next time on The Super Podcast.